One thing that seemed clear was how alone and isolated Joe felt. Thank goodness for Father Freeman. Father Michael Freeman was a Catholic priest and army chaplain at Fort Benning, who coincidentally was from Buffalo, and, as luck would have it, had once been assigned to St. Lawrence Church. Although the Christophers hadn't known him at that time, Joe was eager to talk to a priest. He asked to see Father Freeman often and spoke freely with him. That gave Teresa comfort. At least Joe had one person in the army he could turn to. Teresa got in touch with the good priest, who seemed sympathetic and willing to do whatever he could to help. She sent a packet of Joe's letters to Father Freeman so he could better understand her son's fears and delicate state of mind. She mailed them along with a handwritten note. Dear Father Freeman, Are you sexually attracted to young boys, to underage boys? Am I sexually attracted to yes. underage boys? Yeah! Jury report on priest sexual abuse in Pennsylvania that is calling out the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. The report mentions a former Western New York priest who also served in Pennsylvania. News Force Jen Schantz sat down with one of his accusers tonight. Jen? Pennsylvania's AG published that report. It mentions hundreds of accused priests. But it's Father Michael Freeman who was ordained in Buffalo and served here for several years before moving to parishes in Pennsylvania. The report says after admitting to inappropriate sexual behavior, neither the Diocese of Buffalo or of Erie told law enforcement. Paul Barr says he was abused by Father Michael Freeman as a teenager. Freeman, who was deceased, was included in a list of 42 accused priests published by the Buffalo Catholic Diocese in March. He stayed in my parish um, only for several months and then was transferred, and I essentially lost track of him. Many on that list shuffled from parish to parish. Freeman was no different, eventually landing at parishes in Pennsylvania. What hurts me the most is knowing that even though I reported it myself to the diocese, um, nothing was done, and there were victims after me. It was a Pennsylvania grand jury that compiled a nearly 900-page report on allegations, admissions, and alleged cover-ups of the abuse. Amherst attorney Steve Boyd represents some of Freeman's accusers. Finally, uh, someone, at least in Pennsylvania, has taken it upon themselves to investigate it for what it is, and that is a widespread violent crime spree against children. According to the report, the Buffalo Diocese was aware of Freeman's admitted sexual misconduct by 1981. Freeman remained active in ministry until 1989. What the Buffalo Diocese could do is, is let us look at the records. Let us see what priests were accused of when and what they knew when. You know, it's, it's like Watergate. What did they know and when did they know it? In a statement, Bishop Richard Malone says the Buffalo Diocese is committed to learning from the crimes of the past. He goes on to say this is a new church now. Barr needs more convincing. The Buffalo Diocese would not comment on questions specific to alleged abuse by Father Freeman. The DA's office in Erie County has said its hands are tied in the majority of these allegations due to the statute of limitations. The Child Victims Act, which would allow a look-back window for survivors to seek criminal charges against their abusers, has yet to pass in the state Senate. 
Jen Schatz, News 4. Well, even with all the recent reports of priest abuse cases in the Buffalo Catholic Diocese, a new shocking round of allegations may raise new questions about past handling of such complaints. The Reverend Michael Freeman, who was seen here in an old Buffalo priest directory, has since died. But as the Buffalo News first reported, extremely disturbing claims have resurfaced about his alleged abuse of two teenage boys in the 1980s. Channel 2's Steve Brown sat down with attorney Stephen Boyd, who was representing an unidentified 49-year-old man who filed an abuse claim with the diocese. Boyd says he learned of the connection with another man from Niagara Falls. I knew a lawyer in Niagara Falls, Paul Barr, who was abused by the same priest. So when he was abused, he told a youth counselor in his parish in Niagara Falls, and they took a ride to downtown Buffalo and made a formal written complaint right to the Catholic Center. When was this, roughly? 1980. Okay. High school freshman uh, taken to Toronto and made to have sex with male prostitutes in front of the priest, made to have sex with male prostitutes with the priest. Um, on some occasions, the priest would, um, would point a gun to his head and made even more horrific by the fact that they knew and they could have prevented it. Maybe they couldn't have prevented what happened to Paul Barr, but they could have prevented what happened to my client. This priest um, would have this boy engage in sexual acts and then tell him, now that you've sinned, I can absolve you of your sins. So, you know, if you take this out of the context of the church, it's horrific. And then if you take it back into the context of the church where you have the misuse of a Catholic sacrament, um, it's an abomination. Channel 2 reached out to the Buffalo Diocese and got no response. But the Buffalo News reports they were told Reverend Freeman's file was part of a subpoena request turned over to the New York State Attorney General's office. Freeman was mentioned in the Pennsylvania Attorney General's report on pre-sex abuse conduct. Well, topping the news tonight, Father Michael Freeman was included in a list of 42 accused priests released by the Buffalo Diocese in March. Freeman, who is now deceased, is also included in a lengthy Pennsylvania grand jury report on clergy abuse. Tonight, News 4's Jen Schantz is learning new details from one of his accusers. Jen? Well, Jackie, we've heard from one of Freeman's accusers before. Paul Barr spoke to us back in August. He told us he was abused by Freeman in the 1980s and that he reported it to the Buffalo Diocese. Freeman remained in ministry for years after that. Tonight, we're hearing from the attorney of another alleged victim. We want to let you know some of these claims might be hard to listen to. Attorney Steve Boyd says his client, a 48-year-old man no longer living in the area, Area, met Father Freeman in a parish in the mid-1980s. Freeman, he says, abused his client several times when his client was a teenager. Part of the abuse, he says, involved a silver-plated 38 revolver, which Freeman allegedly held to his client's head. Boyd claims Freeman also took his client to Toronto under the guise of saving male prostitutes by bringing God into their lives. Instead, Freeman allegedly paid for sex with the men and also paid the prostitutes to engage in sex with his client. Keep in mind, these allegations occurred after Paul Barr says he reported Freeman to the diocese. This gentleman has told me that it wasn't so much I'll put a gun to your head, do this or else, but it was more of like a, this would get the priest excited if he held a gun to his head. So, I mean, it's really sick behavior. Like sexually excited, aroused? Yeah, sexually aroused. He would sexually assault this boy and then tell the boy he was a sinner and use the sacrament of penance to forgive 
the boy's sins. According to that Pennsylvania grand jury report, Freeman admitted inappropriate sexual behavior in several occasions. That report indicates the Buffalo Diocese learned of Freeman's alleged abuse in 1981. He remained in ministry until 1989, all under the administration of Bishop Edward Head. Boyd's client is still waiting for an update from the Independent Reconciliation and Compensation Program. Other than the diocese stating the claim has been received, Boyd says he hasn't heard anything. I reached out to the diocese twice today to get its response as to why Freeman remained in ministry so long. They declined to return both my emails and my phone calls. Jen Schatz, News 4. Well, next on the rundown tonight, an alleged victim of clergy sexual abuse has been offered $650,000. That is now the largest offer that we know about from the Victim Compensation Program at Buffalo Catholic Diocese. The accuser says the priest coerced him into sex acts by pointing a gun at his head. Investigative reporter Steve Brown is here with details on the compensation offer. Steve? Scott Marialis, the accused priest in this case is Father Michael Freeman. He died in 2010. The accuser's identity has not been disclosed, but he is represented by local attorney Steve Boyd. Boyd describes his client as a 49-year-old man. The details of the alleged abuse are the stuff of nightmares. In an interview late last month, Boyd described some of the episodes of his client's abuse, which happened in the early 80s. High school freshman uh, taken to Toronto and made to have sex with male prostitutes in front of the priest, made to have sex with male prostitutes with the priest. Um, on some occasions, the priest would um, point a gun to his head. On the offer, Boyd says his client is probably going to take his time to consider whether or not to take the $650,000 that was offered from the diocese. There is a time limit of 60 days once one of these offers has been made. Factoring into that decision the seeming likelihood that the democratically controlled state legislature will pass a bill making it possible for civil lawsuits in cases where the criminal statute of limitations has expired. Leadership in the Assembly and Senate, along with the governor, are all on board with quickly passing and signing such a bill into law early in the next session. Attorney Steve Boyd says James Botlinger's story involving Father Michael Freeman of St. Mary's in Lancaster is well documented. But Boyd says up until now, the 50-year-old Botlinger was known as John Doe. In going public on Facebook from the WNED-TV studio, Botlinger says he took part in the diocese's independent reconciliation and compensation program and was offered $650,000. That really didn't feel right to me. Um, I discussed it with my family and we, we decided that's really not the right thing to do, um, to just take money and go away uh, because the church is still just not being transparent. Botlinger says no one from the diocese took part in the IRCP, and he still wants to know why Father Mike was allowed to move from parish to parish after each complaint was filed against the now-deceased priest. I'd really like to let you know a, a trial happen um, to see how much of the story we can get out um, to make the church actually come to the table and, and admit their wrongdoings. Botlinger is married with two young children and now lives in Okinawa, Japan. He says he was planning to take his story to the grave, but is going public in order to protect future victims and to make the Catholic Church be more transparent. In a written response, a diocesan spokesperson says if litigation is commenced, the diocese will address the case in the appropriate forum. Chris Kaya, WBFO News. Paul Barr of Lewiston recently returned to the scene of the crime. 
an allegation of clergy abuse in the rectory of the former Sacred Heart Church in Niagara Falls. In 1980, when I was 16 years old. He says the now late Reverend Michael Freeman invited him over to discuss starting a new youth group. He brought me inside and long story short, he sexually assaulted me. Paul filed a Child Victims Act lawsuit against the Diocese of Buffalo more than two years ago after initially rejecting an offer from its private mediation program. His is one of about 950 lawsuits against the diocese since the two-year look-back window closed last August. For a, a religious institution that had all of my trust most of my life to be behaving like any other corporation um, is very frustrating. Equally frustrating, says Paul, is that February marks two years since the diocese filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy, further delaying the legal process. Despite our repeated attempts for an on-camera interview with the diocese, leaders in a written statement say a mediator was appointed late last year to negotiate a global settlement with survivors. They say their top priority is to provide a just and equitable compensation. Adding, quote, achieving a settlement will also allow the diocese to emerge from Chapter 11 and continue with vital ministries that serve so many needs across western New York. It was frustrating that, that they used um, bankruptcy protection to shield them from accountability. Also frustrating for Paul's clients, as he's not only a survivor, but an attorney, representing about 40 others with suits against the diocese waiting for justice. And it's been especially difficult because we've lost some survivors. For those still living, Paul remains optimistic they'll reach a settlement. They shouldn't feel any shame about having been abused. Um, it's no reflection on them as people. It's a reflection on the predator. And hopefully that this, this process will unfold fairly and um, quickly. It had been hinted for months, but on Friday morning, it became official. Obviously, the big question that we have right here is that in order for there to be love and all of that, there has to be justice. There has to be a sense that we're doing things right and that we're doing things fairly and that we're doing them in a transparent manner. Apostolic Administrator Bishop Edward Scharfenberger confirming Chapter 11 proceedings. Chet Fuller, the late great Chet Fuller, black journalist, uh, passed away just last week at the age of 72. I'm going to read a little bit from what was published at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution just last week. Chet Fuller, pioneering black journalist in Atlanta, dies at 72. This is written by Ernie Suggs, also a black journalist. Fuller became one of the first black journalists to work at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution following Harmon Perry, who in 1968 became the first black reporter for the then separate Atlanta Journal. At times we walked on eggshells because there were not many blacks on the journalism staff, said Pete Scott, who came to the paper in 1971. We would often talk about being black and the contributions we were making. We knew how important it was not only for us, but for those who were coming after us. Chester Fuller Jr., who worked for the paper 
for 26 years before retiring in 1998, died August 2nd, 2022. Mrs. Fuller said he had a heart attack. He was 72. Black male privilege. A memorial service will be announced later. After his summer in sports at the AJC, Fuller asked to join news asked to, jo- asked to join the news team because he felt he could make more of an impact. He helped cover Wayne Williams and the Atlanta child murder, so-called, and the mayoral tenures of Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young. He became assistant city editor in 1978. He won journalism's Green Eye Shade Award in 1979 for A Black Man's Diary, a 10-part series based on three months of traveling the South as an unemployed black man looking for work. In 1981, his reporting was turned into a book, I Hear Them Calling My Name, And we will stop there. That's in the AJC. That was published just last week. Chet Fuller passing away. The only reason I am aware of Chet Fuller is because he wrote about the 22 caliber killings. In fact, I've read one. He wrote a number of reports, including a very important piece after the Bowen Holmes explosion in October 1980, talked about that earlier in the book club, where he also mentions the Buffalo killings of black males. The piece that I read from Chad Fuller, Buffalo is now a city of fear, was published in August 1983. It reads, I'm not going to read the full piece, I have not been to Buffalo, New York in two years, but it still scares me. It is a bleak city, an aging one with rutted streets and once grand buildings going to seed physical declines which parallel its crippling breakdown in race relations, that word again, and the almost total erosion of trust and cooperation between its black community and its predominantly white police force. When I was there, nearly everywhere I went, I picked up on a foreboding sense of decay and despair. Unemployment was high, particularly among blacks who make up more than 25% of the city's population and are mainly confined to the old central section of the city, the site of Buffalo's worst slums. It was a particularly gloomy time, the spring of 1981, in the midst of widespread panic generated by a puzzling series of slayings of black men because the seven victims were shot with a small caliber pistol the media dubbed the mysterious assailant as the 22 caliber killer and a kind of gruesome lore sprang up around the mystery man exacerbating the tension between the black and white communities hate literature was distributed throughout the city in the form of licenses to hunt coons and back to Africa boat tickets on the Coonard ship line. Black 
police officers reported seeing composite drawings of the murder suspect on bulletin boards in some of the city's precinct offices with my hero and man of the year written under them. This was 1981. A suspect has since been arrested. He has since been judged not fit to stand trial, but the killings have stopped. Still, word from friends in the city and news reports since then indicate things have gotten worse. Buffalo has become the dark side of the American dream. What a metaphor. I will stop there, but this is Chet Fuller writing in 1983, the Atlanta Constitution. That is why I was really upset earlier this week. Like, man, Catherine Pellinero wrote an entire book on these killings, and I don't think she included any black journalists. I was at first upset saying, man, I don't think she included the black press at all. That's easy. I don't think she included any black journalists. The Atlanta Constitution is not a black newspaper, but they do have black journalists who work there. The great Jet Fuller. She didn't even include any of his reports, much less the two black newspapers that are right in Buffalo. Buffalo Criterion, Buffalo Challenger, super important because this is the Catherine Massey Book Club at the Cows. Catherine Massey wrote for both the Criterion and the Challenger, and she is one of the 10 victims of Peyton Gendron at the Tops May of this year. Context of white supremacy, this is our 13th session on Catherine Pellinero's Absolute Madness. It is Friday, July 11, 2022. So I have been told I thought we were going to be all done with the book this week. Headed and quitted. I said that last week. I was going to come in. I was a little upset, though, because I was like, man, this is such intriguing subject matter and there's so much to say and oh my gosh, it'll be a bummer. There are other great things to read, but I was a little bit, you know, sad about seeing it end. I was going to make sure that I got it because I went through the reference section on Monday and Catherine Pellinero does not have a single reference to the Challenger, the Criterion, the Black Pre We played the segment from Tony Brown. The seg Manning Marble did an amazing report in the Afro-American talking about the violence against black people in 1980. Buffalo slangs were a part of that and the Atlanta child murders, so-called. All of that is excluded. That sort of thing I view as an act of white supremacy racism, especially if we're going to try and be a journalist. A, a journalist, she said, hey, I like to be exhaustive, comprehensive with my sources. You ignore the black papers that are right there. That's what I was really focused on intensified at the beginning of the week. But then I said, man, we've been talking about, you know, the, the Buffalo Diocese and they got a, all these decades of sexual abuse that they covered up and lied. 
Let me see if old Father Michael Freeman, let me see if he is actually one of the priests who is involved in all of this and oh my goodness. Michael Freeman, who was accused of sexually abusing students at Turner High School, fondling Michael Freeman, they said he put a gun to a child's head and then went ahead with the child rape. Man, when I found that material, and that wasn't something that took a lot of sleuthing, that was pretty easy. Just put in the name Michael Freeman, not molestation, and bang, page one, and it just went on and on and on. Then I was a little bit happier. Why? Oh, now we will not be ending this book this week. We'll have one more session next week because I need extra time for emphasis like whoa that should be counter racist code now you read you view any project and they're talking about the Catholic Church the Boy Scouts maybe even white people in general maybe people in general white non-white but definitely the so-called Catholic Church you investigate the church, the parish specifically, and then any priests, affiliates named, male or female. That's not something that you need a library card or whatever. You can do that on your phone. I mean, it literally took me 30 seconds. I did, even though I found the information, I did feel a little embarrassed. Like, ooh, I should have looked as soon as his name was mentioned put a gun to his head come on come on now why do I say this is this is important enough to take time hail Mary indeed this is important enough to take time and emphasis I don't want to hear all those lies, rhetorical ethic going all the way back to Yurugu, Dr. Marimba, I need. I don't want to hear all those lies about good Christian, good Catholic, because they said that throughout this here text. Oh, good Catholic Therese, and oh, she spent so much time at the church, and oh, Joey, he was so pious talked about religion all the time matter of fact remember when he met that child and he said hey my name is Joseph Christopher you know JC like Jesus Christ oh my hail Mary indeed I don't want none of that about white Jesus when you got fondling father Freeman and then it's not like this is one. This is decades of white people lying, aiding, and abetting white child rapists. What is that moron? What has he been saying for so long? White people do not care about children. 
this is white culture. The Boy Scouts too are now bankrupt. Same thing. Child, I mean, exact same thing. Decades of child abuse that they knew about, child rape that they knew about, they lied about, what I say, move, minimize, obfuscate, and omit. That's the Boy Scouts, that's the Catholic Church, that's the University of Michigan. We were talking about the scandal with the doctor, the white doctor there, same thing, never prosecuted. Jerry Sandusky at Penn State Jimmy Savile at the BBC this is all around the world Jeffrey Epstein Gisseline Maxwell we were just talking about them matter of fact Thomas Jefferson put the emphasis on how they don't bring that up old Sally Hemings matter of fact what book did we read before we got to Absolute Madness we read Essie Mae Washington Williams J. Strom Thurmond raping a 15 year old black female this is white culture what did Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly say last week he said I believe the black sheriff probably was excuse me the white sheriff in Mississippi probably was raping black females because that was standard operating procedure and to rape black children boys and girls in the archives just last Wednesday this month what did we read in the book club last year I was sitting at Alki Beach I'm at Richmond Beach right now Woody Woody that's not even his name I got to pick a name. What am I going to call myself? Woody. That is white culture. Fondling Father Freeman is white culture. That was one thing that I thought was huge to emphasize within all of this. Why would Joey and Father Freeman connect? What they say? Game, recognize game. Ain't that what they say? They still say that one? Is that old? Why else is this important enough that we're going to do one extra week on this to make sure we do not miss? Now, should Catherine Pellinero have known about this? This book was published in 2008, uh, 2017. All of the reports that we just heard are from 2018 forward and they actually were chronological in the order presented. So you could say just based on looking at the facts and the dates, hey, this book was published a year ahead of time and sometimes with these books, the writer finishes writing the manuscript and what have you and then it takes a full year sometimes to actually get it on the shelf. So there can be a long gap. This book could have been actually finished in the 2016, early 2017. Who knows? And then all this information doesn't come out about fondling Father Freeman until 2018. That could be the case, right? 
I pause on that one because, hey, Catherine Pellinero is an award-winning, best-selling journalist and a white woman. She has family in Buffalo. She was born in Buffalo. She bragged, there's that word again, she bragged about getting access to all the police files on this case. If you want to write a book about it, feel free. Rummage through the attic. It's yours. With all of that at your possession, at your fingertips, as they say, this information about raping priests is not new. The confirmation, yes, 2018 and victims speaking out specifically and all that, but I mean, really, by 2015, matter of fact, let me give you the audio. By 2015, the movie Spotlight had already been released. They're talking about in 2002 all of this coming out about the Boston diocese and raping children and they knew about it and lied and oh, this is so widespread. So all of this was known well in advance. I've talked about the uh, film Spotlight for a long time saying people should watch that. It is a great film. The great Michael Keaton, suspected racist, but it's a great film. It will hold your interest. Interest. It is about actual events. What is white culture? Sound clip, please. This city, these people, making the rest of us feel like we don't belong. But they're no better than us. Look at how they treat their children. Mark my words, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. Subtly, that is the line of the movie. Love it when you can invert one of the maxims that you've heard many, many times. Invert it. Ooh. For sure. For sure. And especially if you're going to have systemic child rape oh yeah you gotta have the whole white community participate in no snitching anyway all of this is also important because all of the anti-sex sexual perversion that is literally dripping on every page of this book just for the quick and dirty recap and I'm in it in just that way forgive the pun so we got what was it uh, Ernest Ernie Smith said that they were going to get whores right after work Joey didn't participate I said that's because he wanted Ernie Ernie said that he and Joey fooled around after work in the gym we got the uh, so-called relationship with Joey and his girlfriend, Donna. She's, I think, like nine years older. He was like 20. She's like 28, 29. We got all the talk about faggot this and faggot that. And I'm not a man. I don't like people impugning my manhood, emasculating me with their words, as it were. 
we got the the cub scouts were mentioned as well i just said the boy scouts are bankrupt for the same reason even last week when they said nicholas christopher racist extreme racist dad found a kindred spirit with uncle laverne the other racist or one of the other racists in the neighborhood and i said dang actually me and bay area mom i said dang uncle laverne huh every page of the book all that fellatio and exchanging food for sexual intercourse and all the rest of it it's all over the book i'm mad because this black male is in a sexual intercourse with a white woman and i'm mad remember that that was zoe and ernest shorty jones it's all over and matter of fact before we get to the text what did father fondling father freeman what did he testify to on the stand buffalo courier express april 15 1982 he says this is titled priest christopher was mocked a roman catholic priest testified yesterday that joseph g christopher felt he was harassed and prosecuted by blacks because black soldiers at fort benning georgia referred to him by names having homosexual and non-manly overtones they called him faggot and wimp said the reverend michael freeman of buffalo diocesan priest who was stationed at Fort Benning from July 1980 to November 1981. They knew he was a child rapist at that time. Buddy, that'll mess your prosecution case up, won't it? Woo! Can't put him on the stand if he's a known child rapist. The report continues. Christopher also faces future... Oh, I skipped that part. Father Freeman testified yesterday that he had several conversations with Christopher who had asked to see him in Fort Benning Stockade in January 1981. Fondlin Freeman related the contents of one 20-minute talk he had with Christopher but said he was bound by a priest uh, penitent privilege not to reveal the other discussions. Fondlin Freeman said he was able to disclose the conversation because Christopher had released him of his vows of of confessional confidentiality. He said Christopher granted the release because Christopher said he was depressed and wanted to see a psychiatrist. The priest said that by disclosing the conversation, he hoped to get Christopher some psychiatric help. He said he also advised Christopher he would tell his problems to Fort Billing, Fort Benning military police and he goes on to give uh, more detail about Christopher being mocked and he didn't get along with the black people at school and all the rest of it but I mean man yes it's very relevant that this guy and they got him on the list for substantiated claims of child rape now we will get started, but this is another one that kind of think now, should Catherine Pellinero have known about all of this, even though, yes, none of the reports that we just heard were published until a year after this book was published. Hmm. How much does that mean to you in context? We will get started. So now this is our second to last study session on Absolute Madness. Catherine Massey Book Club, audio segment one. Chapter 19, 
Christopher's return to Buffalo had once again ignited the local media and factions of the community, particularly black leaders and politicians, who were less than pleased that his convictions for the three twenty-two caliber killings had been overturned. The demands that Christopher be tried again immediately were coupled with revived calls that the remaining murders be solved, particularly the gruesome deaths of Parlor Edwards and Ernest Shorty Jones. In April 1981, when Joseph Christopher had first become a suspect in the shootings and stabbings, investigators had made concerted efforts to either implicate or eliminate him as a suspect in the cabbie killings. Edward Cosgrove had personally visited the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. during the evidence analysis. Christopher's fingerprints and palm prints had been checked against all of the prints lifted from both cabs and Harold Green's car. No matches were found. The six knives seized via the search warrants had been tested for the presence of blood and fibers, with uniformly negative results. A single blue synthetic fiber had been found on one of the knives, but it did not match the clothing of the victims, nor any fibers recovered at the scenes or in the cabs. In addition, the lab had conducted a meticulous microscopic tool mark analysis of all the knives against tool marks made in the cut tree branches that had covered the taxicab of Parlor Edwards. The results were negative. Christopher's blood and hair samples were compared with evidence from the crime scenes, with negative results. All of the physical evidence pointed away from Christopher, as did other facts and circumstances. Many of the key task force members, including the entire scientific investigation unit and senior police officials such as Leo Donovan, who were privy to the full details of the two murders, had long ago dismissed Christopher. To those with sufficient knowledge of both police work and the specifics of the murders, Parlor Edwards and Shorty Jones had not been killed by a single assailant, nor had they been random victims. Tips received by police during the probe of the Edwards and Jones murders had led to a sting operation that in turn resulted in a sweeping arrest of more than a dozen persons involved in a numbers gambling operation on the east side. At the time of the bust, in May 1981, the operation was reported to be clearing $10,000 per week. The cabbie murders had consistently been brought up in the press following Christopher's arrest, lumped in with recaps of the four shootings. Although the negative evidentiary results between Christopher and the cabbie murders was never made public. Even before his fall of 1983 interview with Buffalo News reporter Gene Warner, during which Christopher had said he wasn't denying anything because he didn't want sensationalism, he'd been asked on several occasions, both directly by deputies at the holding center and more indirectly by psychiatrists, if he had killed the cab drivers. His answers had ranged from perplexity at the question to a teasing, I won't say, to irritated denial. Dr. John Train had testified at Christopher's Manhattan trial and related that he'd asked Christopher if he had mutilated anyone, to which Christopher had replied, You're asking me a question I don't want to answer. I just shot them. Dr. Train pressed, and Christopher had become angry, saying, Are you asking me if I shot a cab driver? Dr. Train asked, Did you? Joseph said that he shot four men in Buffalo, 
You asked if I did anything else to their bodies. I shot them. Christopher had never spoken with police about any of the crimes. When it came to the murders of Edwards and Jones, many task force members considered it a moot point. Others on the investigating team, however, didn't want to dismiss Christopher as the killer of the cab drivers, though not necessarily because they believed he'd done it. At the request of black leaders, the task force had been restarted at the end of January 1982 by Cosgrove's successor, District Attorney Richard Arcara. Following Christopher's first trial and conviction in April, as leaders in the black community had exerted pressure to solve the remaining crimes, a split had erupted in the task force. As one senior task force member put it, there were basically two camps. There were those of us who said there was no way Christopher had anything to do with the cabbie murders, and those who just wanted to wrap things up. While some were not familiar with all of the facts in the Edwards and Jones murders, information had been tightly controlled by the top-level personnel, dispensed sparingly on a need-to-know basis. There were others who were clearly more interested in solving a political problem than solving the murders. The question became, as Chief Scientific Investigator Tom Rowan recalled, are we going to pursue the investigation? or are we just going to brush it all off on Joseph Christopher? Toward the end of 1982, the fissure had widened into a chasm. As Tom Rowan said, Up till that time, all of us from these different agencies had worked well together on the investigation, but this fractured the team and pretty much put an end to the cooperation. Those of us who had worked the cases from the beginning were saying, Absolutely not as far as a link between the shootings and the cabbie murders. Nothing about the two sets of killings fit the picture of this being the same offender. The only reason the cabbie murders had ever been grouped in with the twenty-two caliber killings was because of the timing and similarity, or pseudo-similarity, of the victims. With Edwards and Jones, we had two victims who were connected. We also had a lot of indications that these men had not been killed by strangers. Parlor Edwards's taxi cab had been loaded with various items. The cab had been combed over three separate times by both police and the FBI. Everything within, every scrap of paper and every piece of loose change pulled from between the seats had been documented. The only items that had not been found were two of the three wallets that Edwards was known to carry. The third wallet, the one stuffed with his identification, had been placed squarely beneath his body in the trunk of the cab. By all accounts, Parlor Edwards was a very street-savvy man. He did not leave his wallets in plain sight. How would a stranger know that Edwards had two additional wallets hidden in the cab? Why would a killer who'd chosen Edwards at random have placed his identification so conspicuously beneath his body? The placement of the body was another matter that cast serious doubt on the prospect of a lone assailant, particularly Joseph Christopher. It was virtually inconceivable that one man had lifted the body and placed it so neatly, and the evidence clearly showed that the body had been lifted. There were no bloody drag marks on the edge of the trunk, nor even any traces of blood, as there certainly would have been had the body been hauled up into the trunk. The body of Parlor Edwards had been lifted into the trunk by at least two men and set right on top of a wallet that would immediately indicate to police and anyone else 
the identity of the victim. As if the killers did not want the victim's identity to be a mystery. Edwards had cash in his pockets. His credit cards had been left. The killers had apparently only taken the wallets containing the larger sums of money, perhaps because they felt it belonged to them. It could be deduced that there were unwritten but loud and clear messages here, both in the extreme and deliberate savagery inflicted on the victim and in what and how certain things had been left, as if the killers were saying, We want you to know who this is. We want you to know this isn't a robbery. We want you to know what we're capable of. A message, or perhaps a potent warning, intended not for police, but perhaps for other numbers runners who might think of running afoul of the organization. The same could be true of the Shorty Jones murder, which had occurred the following night. There were many elements that pointed away from this being a random attack and instead toward a link with the Edwards murder. There was the fact that Shorty had inexplicably, uncharacteristically, refused all fares that night, including his regular customers and his own daughter. He had driven his cab, keeping close to his usual hangouts, before driving off somewhere after midnight, past the time when he had told Zoe Fontaine he'd return to her, to a destination and purpose he hadn't revealed to the fellow cabbie he'd been talking to just prior. According to the fellow cabbie, Shorty had put a sum of money into a green cooler, placed the cooler in the trunk of his cab, and taken off. Shorty normally talked a lot and pretty freely about his activities, even his criminal activities, which could possibly account for why his throat had been not just cut, but purposefully, gruesomely mangled. Those who had seen Shorty the day of his death had told police that he appeared very preoccupied and concerned, not like his happy-go-lucky self. There was also the fact that Shorty knew about the murder and identity of Parlor Edwards before the news had been made public. He told Zoe about the murder. He also told her that he didn't know Parlor Edwards and never had any dealings with him, which police had discerned was untrue. Edwards and Jones had one time worked for the same cab company, one that was well known to police as complicit in the numbers racket, They'd both frequented the Chippewa area for fairs, which is how they both knew Colin Cole, and Parlor lived next door to the longtime girlfriend of Shorty's brother. Beyond all of that, many seasoned investigators didn't buy Joseph Christopher as a viable suspect, regardless of the victim links and the total lack of evidence placing Christopher at any of the murder or dump scenes. None of us in our camp really thought that Joe Christopher was physically or emotionally or psychologically capable of that, said Tom Rowan. Not that he wasn't a stabber, but dismembering and taking a heart, that just did not fit in any way. FBI profiler John Douglas had advised early on that they had two different offenders. A senior task force member said, Parlor Edwards and Shorty Jones were both very strong, very sharp, very streetwise guys. Frankly, the idea of a wimp like Joseph Christopher getting the jump on these two was ludicrous. Parlor was older, but he was a big guy and strong. Shorty Jones wasn't as physically large, but he was very muscular. These two victims were confronted. They fought back. 
parlor had a metal pipe. Shorty's knife was found by his body. The idea that Joe Christopher brawled with these two guys, much less disarmed them, and won, didn't seem likely. There were authorities who were nevertheless content to let the public believe that all the murders were attributable to Christopher. Tom Rowan recalled, It became an irreconcilable difference between those who wanted to tie things up and give the community peace of mind, and those of us who refused to go along. With such vehement disagreement among investigators, a resolution was needed. As Rowan explained, anyone who didn't march to the tune of We're Wrapping This Up was removed from the case. This included Rowan, Leo Donovan, and all of the municipal police departments. We were told that the state police were taking over the cab driver investigation and were ordered to turn our evidence over to them. We weren't happy about it, but there wasn't much we could do. The crime scenes crossed city and town lines. Parlor Edwards was killed in Cheektowaga, but dumped in Amherst, right across the town line. So the state police were the overarching authority because everything happened on New York state property. Not all state police were on board with the theory that Christopher had killed the cab drivers. Matt Ortiz, son of state police investigator and task force member Amador Ortiz, recalled, My dad always insisted that both of the cab killings were mob-related since both, Edwards and Jones, were bookies. Even without knowing all that pointed away from Joseph Christopher, there were people in the community who weren't content that the cabbie murders had been solved, particularly since Christopher had never been charged. In the six years that had now elapsed since the murders, the case hadn't even been presented to a grand jury. The cabbie homicides remained a thorn in the side of the district attorney's office, festering anew with the added pain of Christopher's retrial. Prosecutors anticipated a psychiatric defense, which they regarded as no small obstacle to conviction. Failure in a high-profile case such as this, with its racial overtones and relentless media attention, was not an option. It was in this tense atmosphere that prosecutors Al Rainey and Thomas Owanu began preparations. The reversal of the first trial had been a public relations nightmare. The psychiatric issues now raised a whole new dilemma. As things turned out, however, the overturn of the first convictions and mental illness would prove to be a godsend for the office of the district attorney. Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney had each met separately with Joe at the holding center on the weekend following his return to Buffalo. On February 27, 1986, a day ahead of a court hearing regarding assignment of counsel for the new trial, Mark Mahoney filed a motion to withdraw as Christopher's attorney. In an 11-page affidavit, Mahoney detailed his history with Joseph as well as their interaction, or lack thereof, during the recent visit. Between April of 1981 and April of 1982, Mahoney wrote, it can be conservatively stated that Mr. Dillon and I spent more than 1,800 hours on behalf of Mr. Christopher. Our representation reflected an out-of-pocket loss in excess of $18,000. That is, far from providing any actual income, the compensation received overall 
fell approximately $18,000 short of covering our expenses attributable to the time we spent on this matter. Mahoney explained that for purposes of continuity of representation, he had been involved in Christopher's case and communicating with his various attorneys throughout the past five years. Mr. Christopher has never discussed with me any facts relevant to the actual accusations herein, Mahoney wrote. My conclusion is that, by reason of his mental illness, he is incapable of doing so. However, it also appears that I am the only attorney with whom he has ever been willing to engage in any type of colloquy, however short this may have fallen from the rational, relevant, or thorough. When I first saw Mr. Christopher in Fort Benning, he was forthcoming with no information. During the period of time when he was in the holding center, although he never communicated anything of substantive value concerning the charges, he did engage occasionally in superficial banter with me. I found that I am the only attorney with whom he has ever had that ability to so converse. This includes attorneys for the Legal Aid Bureau, Mr. Dillon, and four attorneys in New York City. I once asked Mr. Christopher why he only spoke to me, and the only response he gave was that, You are interesting. He gave a brief recap of the history of Joseph's incompetency and reports from a multitude of psychiatrists. I am absolutely confident that Mr. Christopher's rigid uncommunication with counsel is not merely a question of personality, strategy, or rational choice. It is the product of deep mental illness. If Mr. Christopher were competent to assist in his defense, a wide range of strategic response was possible given various hypothetical assumptions regarding his culpability. A favorable plea arrangement in exchange for disclosure of any information Mr. Christopher may have regarding the cases, testimony by Mr. Christopher regarding his lack of involvement in offenses, and so on. His illness precluded such possibilities. There had been only one instance throughout his entire legal process where Joseph had given information that actually assisted his defense, and that had been when he'd told his attorneys about the Army stockade commander offering him sexual favors from a woman in an effort to induce Joseph to make statements to him. It had been Mahoney's impression that Joe brought the incident to their attention not because he perceived its legal significance, but because of the entertainment value. I testified at the competency hearing in New York City, Mahoney continued, though some of the expert witnesses have found that Mr. Christopher's refusal to talk to them constituted no evidence of incompetency. I believe the record is clear that his refusal to talk is the clearest evidence of his incompetency. Unfortunately, at the present time, his difficulty in this regard seems worse than I've ever seen it. On his recent visit to see Joseph at the holding center, Mahoney found Joe lying on his side with a towel covering his entire face except for the area below his cheeks and nose. Mahoney knew he wasn't asleep because he'd heard Joe tell the guard, he's not my attorney, when the guard had told him that Mark Mahoney was there to see him. Mahoney greeted Joe and asked him to come and speak with him in a visiting room. He received no response to this or to anything else. 
I attempted to be alternatively sympathetic, prodding, challenging, chiding, and amusing. He apparently does not find me interesting anymore, for he gave absolutely no verbal or physical response to my inquiries. After about ten minutes, Mahoney gave up and left. I conclude that Christopher is less able now than at any previous time to assist in his defense. I also believe that his genuine cooperation could greatly enhance the possibility of acquittal before a jury on these homicide charges, Mahoney wrote. Although I would previously have acknowledged that Mr. Christopher was aware of the nature of the charges against him and so on, I would probably be less willing to do so at the present time. The attorney felt that the issue of Christopher's competency should be seriously revisited. He wished to be relieved from representing him so that a fair determination could be made without inviting speculation that Christopher's unwillingness to communicate was the result of his relationship with Mahoney rather than mental illness. He agreed to stay on as transitional counsel and requested that the court appoint at least two attorneys to represent Joseph. Kevin Dillon's own jailhouse visit with Joe had led him to the same conclusion. At a court appearance on February 28th, Judge Joseph P. McCarthy, who would preside over the new trial, asked Joe questions about his preference for appointment of counsel. Joe sat with a fixed smile on his face and didn't answer or look at the judge. McCarthy afterward appointed Sean Hill and David Jay both seasoned criminal defense attorneys, to represent Christopher. David Jay was known as an ardent advocate of civil rights who had never shied from controversial or unpopular causes, which this certainly was. Jay and Hill met their client for the first time at the holding center. Joe wouldn't speak to them. Following his discharge from Central New York Psychiatric Center the previous fall, the anti-psychotic medications had been discontinued. At the jail in Buffalo, he paced back and forth in his cell. He stared suspiciously at anyone who came by, but stayed mute. He stopped eating. On March 7th, he was sent to Erie County Medical Center. The hospital gave him prolixin decanoate, a long-acting antipsychotic. His behavior improved. The hospital discharged him on April 10th back to the holding center. Dr. Brian Joseph was the chief of psychiatric services for the Erie County Forensic Mental Health Service. Dr. Joseph was well acquainted with Christopher. He had examined him for the first time in 1981, prior to his first trial. He had testified at his competency hearings in Buffalo and New York City, as well as at the 1985 trial in Manhattan. Dr. Joseph had diagnosed Christopher with paranoid schizophrenia back in November of 1981. He had never wavered on his diagnosis. On the contrary, everything he'd read, seen, and heard about Christopher or observed from the patient himself solidified his professional opinion that the man suffered from chronic and severe mental illness in the form of paranoid schizophrenia. Dr. Joseph visited Christopher at the holding center the day after his return from the county hospital. He found him much more verbal and calm. Christopher's behavior was appropriate, and he appeared to be in good contact. However, 
He was intent on avoiding further medication. He hated the medication. He'd been given Haldol the previous summer at the hospital and experienced dystonic side effects, such as involuntary turning of his head. Well aware of how rapidly he would degenerate without medication, Dr. Joseph wrote a letter to Judge McCarthy requesting authorization to give Christopher injectable prolixin deconoate over the patient's objection. The court granted the order. Christopher had to be held down and restrained in order to make it happen, but the medication was administered. The following week, Joe had a conversation with his new attorneys. He communicated with them fairly well. He told David Jay that he did not want an insanity defense. Jay told him that was fine. Make the prosecution prove their case. Joe seemed pleased with that. Psychiatrist S.K. Park met with Christopher for a little under an hour on April 18th. Dr. Park had first met Joe in the fall of 1981, when he had conducted a competency exam and had diagnosed him as suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. In the new report he sent to Judge McCarthy, Dr. Park noted his surprise at Joe's cooperation and eagerness to start a conversation. When questioned as to what made him decide to talk so freely, Joe replied that the psychiatrist would give him medications against his will unless he talked. Dr. Park wrote that Joe showed a mild degree of irritability and excitement during the interview. His speech was coherent and productive. Park judged that his insight was inadequate, however, as Joe told him, I never had mental problems. Based on the exam, Dr. Park believed that Joe's psychosis was in remission and he was currently able to assist in his defense. Dr. Brian Joseph concurred in his own report to the court. I have seen this man in the past and feel quite definitely that he suffers from paranoid schizophrenia, Dr. Joseph wrote, stating that the antipsychotic medication was keeping his psychosis in a state of reasonable remission. The trial was scheduled for the fall of 1986. Christopher was maintained on daily doses of Navain, another antipsychotic medication. He experienced side effects, twitching in his right thumb and constant movement of his feet and legs, for which he was prescribed cogentin, which helped with the side effects but did not eliminate them. Dr. Joseph monitored his condition and felt he tolerated the medication well. His mental state had stabilized. Joe cooperated with his attorneys in a rational and sustained manner for the first time. They agreed to a plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. Dr. Brian Joseph agreed to testify for the defense. In addition to the number of times he had examined Christopher over the past six years, Dr. Joseph had looked carefully at his history. He had met with Teresa Christopher. She had described Joe's behavior during the year before his arrest, the extreme withdrawal, hiding plastic spoons and forks around the house, his anxieties and suspicions and complaints that the people on TV were talking about him. To Dr. Joseph, what Teresa described were the prodromal symptoms of a schizophrenic episode, the early symptoms that come before the acute onset of the illness. Dr. Joseph had a wealth of experience in identifying and treating schizophrenia. He had practiced psychiatry at a host of medical institutes on the East Coast, including Johns Hopkins, 
at Massachusetts General Hospital. He had spent six years as an instructor in psychiatry at the Harvard University School of Medicine before returning to Buffalo in 1980. Dr. Joseph was also well-versed in forensic psychiatry, a branch of psychiatry dealing with the assessment of mentally impaired offenders. He had a sophisticated understanding of the interface between mental health and the law. As he would say years later in recalling Joseph Christopher, it's very, very hard to fake mental illness. People who are trying to fake it usually act clownish or stupid because they think that's how the mentally ill would act. I always made a point of building relationships with guards at jails so I could ask them how an inmate behaved when I wasn't around or they thought they were unobserved. Speculation on the motive behind Christopher's criminal acts was still a frequent subject in the news. To Dr. Joseph, there was no mystery no hidden cause or rationale to be someday unearthed. It was paranoid schizophrenia. Just as he was certain of this, he was equally certain there would be a rejection of the explanation of mental illness, both in court and in the general public. Who could continue to insist on a motive they could better understand, one that made sense to a non-psychotic mind? As such, he was well aware of the dim prospects for Joseph Christopher. I was convinced this was a very sick guy, said Dr. Joseph. I was equally convinced he was going to be convicted. Decades after the trial, Brian Joseph explained, if you do defense work as a psychiatrist for the insanity plea, the only way you can survive is if you have the attitude of Rhett Butler toward the Battle of Atlanta. Scarlet asks why he's going off to fight when the battle has already been lost. He tells her, I have a penchant for lost causes, once they're really and truly lost. If you have that attitude, you'll survive in this business, because nobody ever gets the insanity defense. Prosecutor Al Rainey informed the court that he planned to have psychiatrist Richard Wiedenbacher of New York City examine the defendant on behalf of the prosecution. Two weeks before the trial was set to begin, Dr. Wiedenbacher called with bad news. He was experiencing health problems that prevented his participation. He apologized profusely. He also cautioned Rainey against attempting to argue that Christopher was not mentally ill which he stated would be incorrect and fruitless. Wiedenbacher's opinion was not that Christopher was without mental illness. He had, in fact, diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia in remission in January 1982, but that he knew his acts were wrong and therefore still bore responsibility under the law. The withdrawal of Dr. Wiedenbacher presented a major problem for the prosecution, they needed to find a suitable replacement as quickly as possible, a psychiatrist with credentials who would see things their way. Countering a claim of serious mental disease might not be as easy as it had been back in 1982, when Dylan and Mahoney had made their futile last attempt. This time around, the opinion of a doctor from a state hospital who kept flunking his board exams might not suffice. Christopher now had a lengthy history of documented mental illness from a plethora of psychiatrists, hospitals, and institutions. His rambling screeds had been published in the Buffalo News. 
Overcoming a psychiatric defense, particularly with Dr. Brian Joseph testifying for the defense, would be a challenge. Dr. Joseph had spent more time with the defendant over the past five years than any other psychiatrist. The prosecution needed a countering opinion from a doctor who could come across to a jury as distinguished and authoritative. Assistant District Attorney Tom Owanu was assisting Al Rainey with the Christopher prosecution. Owanu was a young attorney who had joined the district attorney's office in 1982, straight from law school. Deputy D.A. Al Rainey had taken a liking to Owanu and became his mentor. He admired Rainey and was flattered when the deputy D.A. asked him to be co-counsel. Al Rainey was a workaholic and, in the words of Tom Owanu, a brilliant trial strategist. Rainey had prosecuted Christopher the first time. The retrial would be entirely different from the first. In this instance, it was not a matter of proving that Christopher had shot Don Green and Thomas, but convincing a jury to reject his defense of mental disease or defect. Though the insanity defense had failed in the Manhattan trial, they couldn't take for granted that it would fail here, particularly since they no longer had Dr. Wiedenbacher as an expert witness. As Owanu recalled, there was a lot of concern about finding a psychiatrist for the prosecution. We knew Brian Joseph was an excellent psychiatrist, very competent and highly regarded. We knew how talented Dr. Joseph was, and we had utmost respect for him. He wasn't necessarily prone to finding a defendant mentally ill. He was a straight shooter, not predisposed one way or the other. So our concern was, from a trial standpoint, that a lot of psychiatrists might find Christopher suffering from a mental disease or defect. We had to be careful, because we didn't want to generate discovery, Rosario or Brady material. Rosario material includes statements of a witness who will testify at trial. Brady material is evidence that may be exculpatory or favorable to the defendant. Rosario and Brady material must be turned over to the defense. In other words, if the prosecution had Christopher examined by a psychiatrist who deemed him to be suffering from a mental disease or defect at the time of the commission of the crimes, that information would, by law, have to be turned over to Christopher's attorneys. This posed a significant problem for the district attorney. They needed to find a psychiatrist who would be certain to aid their cause. As Tom Owanu explained, we reached out to other prosecutors' offices and learned that Dr. Barton would be the right guy. Dr. Russell Barton was a British-born psychiatrist in his 60s who had emigrated to the United States in 1969. He was so prosecution-friendly that he was frequently called by district attorneys around the region and was on permanent retainer with the DA's office in Monroe County in nearby Rochester, where he resided. Barton had a long resume as a psychiatrist and administrator at psychiatric facilities in England and the United States. His reputation was laced with controversy. He was a great proponent of the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill, moving patients out of psychiatric hospitals and into community care, and had been accused of ethical violations such as rushing down to jails at the behest of law enforcement to examine persons arrested for violent crimes 
before they had been given an opportunity to speak with an attorney. As one prosecutor described Dr. Barton, he had a lot of far-out ideas. One of his more far-out ideas had sparked a great deal of outrage back in his home country. Barton had been to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp at the time of the British liberation at the end of World War II. He had later written an article for Purnell's History of the Second World War, in which he asserted that Bergen-Belsen had been a work camp rather than an extermination center. He concluded that there had been no deliberate intent on the part of the Germans to starve or exterminate the detainees. The massive deaths and deplorable conditions had resulted not from abuses of the German overseers, but had come about due to the overcrowding and prisoner abuses of one another, as different ethnic groups had formed cliques, deprived others of their rations, and shown an indifference to their well-being that Barton attributed to institutional neurosis. He viewed prisoner accounts of atrocities with skepticism, but appeared to accept the word of Nazi commandants that Allied bombing had prevented the camp from receiving adequate food and medical supplies. The London Times printed a scathing response under the headline, Belson, not so bad, says psychiatrist. Barton was widely excoriated for the piece, but stood by his theories. His article was later reprinted in the booklet, Did Six Million Really Die? Despite the baggage, Barton had a personal presentation that could score points with the jury. He was a nice man, Tom Owano recalled. He had an English accent, very mild-mannered. He could play brilliantly to a jury. Barton had a lot of experience in court. By his own estimate, Dr. Barton testified 30 to 40 times per year on average, at least 80 percent of the time for the prosecution. Owano continued, He wasn't eager about taking the case at first, because he had some health problems. Owanu and Al Rainey traveled to Rochester to make a personal appeal. Al named an exorbitant amount of money he'd be paid and said it would include everything. You do understand, doctor, that you'll get door-to-door -door service, mileage, gas. It was the most money this man ever made in his life, no doubt about it. Rainey found out how much he made annually. We did our homework. With the services of Dr. Barton secured, the prosecution moved forward with renewed confidence. Russell Barton could be just the man they needed if he could find prisoners of a Nazi concentration camp culpable for their own starvation and inhuman living conditions. Surely he could find Joseph Christopher sane. Dr. Barton met with Joe in a room at the Erie County Holding Center on November 6, 1986. Al Rainey and Tom Owanu were present. The interview was videotaped. It was the first of two interviews Dr. Barton had with Joe Christopher over a two-day period that would span a little more than three hours in total. Dr. Brian Joseph was present for a portion of the first day's interview, though strictly as an observer. Joe was led into the room by deputies, unshackled and wearing green prison-issue clothing. He took a seat across the table from Barton. Dr. Barton introduced himself and the prosecuting attorneys. I've been asked to examine you by the district attorney, Barton said. 
explaining that his relationship with Joe was not that of a doctor and patient, Barton said. What I have to do is try to find out how your mind was doing at certain times at the end of 1980, when you're said to have killed some guys. Dr. Barton told Joe that he would appreciate his cooperation. I try to be fair, said Barton. Everybody thinks the D.A. has me in his pocket. I say it as I find it. Barton began by asking Joe about his medications and his history in and out of psychiatric centers. Joe's manner was cordial and calm, his answers spontaneous. For Tom Owanu, his first meeting with Joseph Christopher was jarring, but not in the way he had anticipated. To me, the guy just wasn't a criminal, Owanu recalled. From first impression, I felt sorry for him, terribly sorry for him. He was not a monster at all, the opposite, a quiet, gentle, very nice young man. Your heart went out to him when you met him, and that's the last thing in the world you want to expect when you're a tenacious young prosecutor. You're wearing that white hat, and you go in thinking, okay, I'm meeting maybe the most evil person in this community in the last century, and five minutes into it, you feel sympathy. Prior to the Barton interview, Owano knew little about Christopher personally. One thing we did know about him, that up till these events, he was very well liked, a quiet little guy. Nobody had a bad word to say about him. He hit age 25, and off he went. It wasn't long into the examination before Rainey and Owano began to regret their decision to have it videotaped. We knew immediately it had backfired, said Owano. In my mind, the best evidence for mental disease or defect was going to be this tape. It wasn't that Christopher was behaving in a crazy or outlandish fashion. In Awanu's view, he came across as humble and honest. He spoke of his use of street drugs, his withdrawal from people, his frequent refusals to speak to others. I used to sit in a corner and not talk to anyone. He didn't know why. Things had first changed in the summer of 1985, when he'd been medicated, which he admitted had been done against his will. He conceded that his thinking and interactions with others had normalized with medication, but said the physical side effects bothered him a great deal. Dr. Barton asked Joe if he'd ever heard voices when no one was talking. Joe said it began around July 1980. He remembered because it had started around the time of his birthday. I heard voices over the TV, and they were telling me I was being drafted into the Army, and I went over to the psychiatric center to try to be admitted, but they wouldn't admit me. Then I joined the Army. After that, after I joined the Army, I thought I was in a war. I had a mission that I was supposed to kill people, and, um, I melted down a twenty-two and went around shooting people. Barton had been provided with questions from the prosecutors. He asked Joe if he had killed cab drivers and removed their hearts. Joe replied that he had killed a cab driver and put a stake through his heart because he thought he was the devil. When he gave that answer, Tamawanu recalled, Al and I were both like, stop the tape. It was so clear at that point that he had a mental disease or defect. We didn't expect him to admit it, first of all. Our trial strategy, in the words of Al Rainey, was to make him look bad, not mad. This tape was demonstrating the reverse. 
Here was a guy on trial for murder being interviewed on video that may be seen by the jury, and he's confessing to two others. The videotape was stopped. It was too late to simply discontinue the taping. Al Rainey spoke privately with Dr. Barton. When the tape resumes, Barton says to Joe, I'm sorry, you were telling me that you killed a cab driver? Mm-hmm. And you thought he was the devil? Mm-hmm. And you put a stake through his heart? A wooden stake, about this long. Joe held his hands about twelve inches apart. I cut his heart out and pounded it in his heart. I pounded the stake in his heart. Do you have a knowledge of anatomy? Barton asked. No special knowledge, no. How did you know where his heart was? It's in his chest. I can feel my own heart. Was this cab driver black or white? Black. Where did you do this? Uh. Joe thought for a moment. Near the airport. In a deserted lot near a car park? Barton asked. Near a building. How did you kill him? With a hatchet. What did you do? Hit him on the head? Mm-hmm. Did he know you were going to kill him? I don't think so. Did you get him to drive to this place? Yes. Did he object at all? No. You didn't have to threaten him? No. Where'd you get the hatchet? I was carrying it. And where did you hit him? On the back of the head or in the chest? No, in his face. You hit him in his face. So he must have seen it coming, said Barton. Mm-hmm. Did he yell? Mm, no. He went to grab a bar, then he started hitting me with the bar, and I was hitting him with the axe. He was hitting you with the bar. Did you get any injuries at all? No. Why did you kill him again? I thought he was the devil. I thought I was on an army mission. Had the army given you the hatchet? No. All I did was sign up for the army. I hadn't been in anything yet. So you weren't in the army at the time, said Barton. But you signed up how long before this happened? Uh, just probably not even a week. Do you think it was wrong to kill the cab driver? Now, yes. At the time? No. What did you think he was doing that merited execution? I thought he was the devil. That was... It was wrong with me. And you tried to put a stake through his heart? Mm-hmm. But that's not the devil, is it? I thought it was. You put the stake through the heart in vampires, don't you? I thought it was the devil. You thought that's how you killed the devil? Barton asked. Yes. And where did you leave the heart and the stake? I threw it in a field. You threw it in a field? Was the field close to where? Right next door. And then did you do that again to anyone? Yes. Who was that? Another cab driver. Was that the same night? No. How long after? I don't recall. And what did you do then? I cut his heart out and pounded a stake through it. Where did that happen? On Sheridan, end of Sheridan Drive. Was that in a parking lot? Yes. And how did you kill him? With a hammer. And where did you hit him? In the head. Did he know you were going to do it? No. Did you hit him once or many times? Joe paused, 
I put two holes in his head. Did he shout or yell? Uh, nah. I don't recall anything he said. And after you'd hit him in the head, did he slump forward? He fell on the ground and I cut his throat. You cut his throat? Mm-hmm. Had you got a knife? Mm-hmm. And then what did you do? Cut his heart out, pounded a stake through it. You cut his heart out. How did you... I mean, the ribs. I've done post-mortems, and the ribs are difficult to get through. How did you get at his heart? Barton asked. Cut it and reached in there and grabbed it. Cut through the ribs? Cut through the ribs. Not through the ribs, like in between them. Joe gestured to his own upper rib cage, opened it up, and cut the heart out. And where'd you get the stake? I brought it from home. What sort of stake was it, a garden stake? No, about this thick. He curled his fingers in an O shape, inch and a half thick and maybe ten, twelve inches long, sharpened it. What do you use stakes like that for? I made it. I see. So you wanted to do this before you ever set out? I thought I was... I had a mission. How many stakes did you prepare altogether? Three. So this was the second stake you were using? Mm-hmm. When did you make these stakes? The day before I did it. And then you killed one cab driver, said Dr. Barton, cut his heart out, put the stake through it, threw it in the field next door, having hit him in the face with a hatchet. Second guy, you hit with a hammer twice, made holes in his head, cut his heart out, and drove the stake through it. Mm-hmm. Barton asked what he'd done with the second heart. Same thing. Threw it in a field. You threw it in a field. And what did you do then? Drive the cab away? Yes. Did you get a lot of blood on you? No. My hands. It don't come off your hands. Did you get it on your clothes at all? I don't recall. And then what did you do? Drive home or... No. I drove the cab and then walked home. You drove the cab. Do you know where you left the cab? On the west side somewhere. And then you walked home? Yes. And how were you feeling? Triumphant? Barton asked. I don't recall. I was terrified that I was going to be attacked. By whom? By other black people. Why should black people attack you? I don't know. But you didn't particularly dislike black people? No. Even with Barton's leading questions, Joe was making mistakes, both in details that contradicted the physical evidence and claims that were implausible. It is not possible to excise a human heart by slipping a knife in between two ribs. The heart is anchored in the chest by great vessels at the top, bottom, and on each side, as well as at the rear. With both victims, all the connecting vessels had been lacerated cleanly with a single precision cut, without destruction of the rib cage, chest cavity, or surrounding organs. The chest incisions were likewise precise, made with a very sharp knife. The great vessels had been cut with a very sharp instrument. This could not have been done with a weapon as clumsy as a hatchet, no matter how sharp. Three of Parlor Edwards's ribs had been excised, though again with precise cuts, 
not crushing blows from a hatchet. The hearts of both victims had been removed in a manner that indicated one assailant holding the ribcage apart while another reached in and cut all of the great vessels. The jobs had been done with deliberation and exactitude. Joe claimed that he hit Parlor Edwards in the face with a hatchet, and Edwards then grabbed a bar that he used to hit back as Joe continued hitting him with the axe. Skipping the question of how Parlor Edwards could have picked up a bar after being hit in the face with a hatchet, how is it possible that Joe could have sustained no injury after being hit with a bar, as he claimed? The bar, or lead pipe, found at the scene was identified as having belonged to Edwards. It was covered in blood and hair. Medical evidence showed that the blood and hair on the bar all belonged to Edwards, and further that the bludgeoning had been inflicted before the knife wounds. Why did Joe not mention taking the bar away from Edwards and beating him with it? In addition to the removal of his heart, Parler had a number of stab wounds, one in his back, one in his neck, four on the top of his head, that had been made with a sharp knife. The blade length and the depth of these wounds were not consistent with a hatchet. The only wounds on Edwards that could have come from a hatchet were the blunt force injuries to his face and head at least some of which had been made with the lead pipe. Why did Joe not mention the stabbings? Why did he not mention having or using a knife in addition to the hatchet? Joe claimed he threw the staked hard in a field next to where Edwards was killed. The police had conducted a massive grid search of the area within hours of the murder. Every item on the ground within the surrounding area, every empty bottle and stray candy wrapper, was collected and catalogued as potential evidence. How likely was it that the police would not have found the staked heart? Even supposing an animal had come along and carried it off, twelve-inch stake and all, there would have been blood marks where it landed. In the murder of Shorty Jones, Joe said he hit him twice in the head with a hammer, then cut his throat. Like Parlor Edwards, Jones had also been stabbed, once in the neck, twice in his back, once behind his left ear, and once in the chest above the incision made post-mortem to remove his heart. He had four blunt injuries to his head, two of them described by the medical examiner as puncture marks. Yet Joe did not mention the stabbings or the two unusual head wounds made with a separate weapon. Joe's account of cutting Jones's throat matched only the basic information repeated time and again in the media and lacked details that the murderer would have known. The throat of Shorty Jones had, in fact, been sliced three separate times, once on either side and in the middle. One of the cuts was so deep it had incised the vertebra. Jones had been nearly decapitated. Joe claimed that Jones fell on the ground and he cut his throat. Did he lift Jones up to make the two additional massive cuts? He said he drove a stake through Jones's heart and threw it in a field. There is no field near the boat launch where Jones was killed. The murder happened steps away from the Niagara River. If he only meant to discard it anyway, why not throw the stake into the river? Joe's claim that he only got blood on his hands defied all logic. The trail of blood at the Jones murder scene measured thirty feet long. How could he have nearly decapitated a man cut out the heart, and only had blood on his hands. Joe said he drove away in Jones's cab. 
How could he have done this without leaving any fingerprints, especially if his hands were bloody? More than twenty finger and palm prints were lifted from various areas of the cab, including the bloody palm print of the victim. Assuming Joe wiped away his prints, how did he manage to cleanly and meticulously wipe away only his own and leave so many others? Of all the places where he could have abandoned the cab, how did he coincidentally leave it parked within a few feet of the home of Zoe Fontaine's family, particularly when this neighborhood was clear across the city from his own home? Following the Q&A on the cab driver murders, Dr. Barton turned the interview to more general topics. He then asked Joe about crimes with which he'd actually been charged. Barton's questions on these were leading as well. On September 22nd, you killed Glenn Dunn, and you were sitting in front of Tops, and you had a paper bag with you? With Joe agreeing to what Barton said rather than explaining or offering many details himself. How would you describe yourself? Barton asked. Do you think you're a good guy, a nice guy, basically? I don't believe this stuff happened to me, said Joe. It's hard to believe that I would do something like this. It happened several times, they say, said Barton, that you did something to these guys in New York or Buffalo. Dr. Barton asked Joe why he had stabbed fellow soldier Leonard Coles. Joe replied, I was hearing voices. I thought he was saying I was a homo. Same thing. I thought I was on a mission. Dr. Barton pressed him on what the voices had said. Joe appeared embarrassed as he explained that he'd believed he would be sodomized had he not obeyed the order to stab Coles. Barton asked Joe if he had ever hunted or gotted deer. Joe replied that he had, and the doctor said, Now you've answered one of my other questions, how you knew where the heart was. I didn't think of it, Joe said. Besides, all you've got to do is pick them up and shake them. The guts come out then you reach in and grab the rest of it. That's a deer or a human? Barton asked. Deer. I never gutted a human. But you took the hearts out of these guys, Barton said, returning to the subject of the cab drivers. What did you do with the bodies? Just left them there. On the ground? Mm-hmm. Or did you put them in the trunk? One I put in the trunk. And the other body you left on the ground? Mm-hmm. Did you hire the cab? Uh, yeah. Where'd you have the hatchet? Inside my coat. And he didn't even see you? Yeah, he seen me when I had the hatchet. I hit him. But did he talk to you before you hit him? No. And you hit him in the face? Mm-hmm. Did he die quickly? There was a pause. No. He fought, Joe said. He was hitting me with an iron bar, and I was hitting him with an axe. So how long did it go on for? Five minutes. Did he hit you at all hard anywhere? Didn't feel it. I was like crazy. And then what did you do after that? Put him in the trunk and drove him someplace else and dumped the car. And how did you dump the car? I put it along the thruway. Did you cover the car up? Did you disguise it, camouflage it? Yes, I cut down a tree and put it on top. How did you cut down the tree, with a hatchet? No, with a knife. 
couldn't have been a very big tree, could it? No, just a little sapling. Yeah. Why did you cover it up with a tree? I don't know. It was an afterthought. How long after you'd done it was it discovered? Barton asked. Was it in the papers the next day? I don't recall. What about Ernest Jones? Ernest Jones? He was the other cab driver. Why didn't you use the hatchet on him? The hatchet broke. What, when you were cutting down the tree? No, when I was hitting him. Edwards. So did the hammer, matter of fact. What did you do with the hatchet? I threw it in the field. Tell me about the stake in the heart, Barton said. Why did that have to be done? He was the devil. So when you picked him up, did you think he was the devil? Yes. It was anybody. It didn't matter who, said Joe. It was like a driving thing that I had to do. I can't explain it. Like an obsession. A compulsion, Barton commented. Then the next night, the other guy, his name was Jones. You killed him with a hammer and you say the hammer broke? Mm-hmm. Then I cut his throat. And you cut his heart out? Yes, and put a stake in it. And then what did you do with the body? I just left it there and drove the cab away. Wasn't there a lot of blood in the cab? No, not that I recall. He was outside the cab, waiting for me to pay him. Oh, I see. It happened outside the cab. Mm-hmm. Did he fight at all? No. He just was unconscious? No. He fell down and then tried to stand up and fell down again. And did you hit him again? Yes. Pretty gruesome. Barton paused. At the time all this was happening, were you cool and relaxed about it, emotionally sort of flat about it? I was like energized, like supercharged, like I was real strong. Were you taking any medication, any street drugs? No. Even with Barton's prompting on things such as leaving one of the bodies in a trunk and camouflaging the top of Edwards's cab, Joe's answers, with the exception of details that had been in the news countless times, contradicted the evidence. If he had thrown the hatchet into the field, why had it not been found? He claimed he'd gotten the victims to drive him willingly by hiring the cabs. How could this be, when Edwards and Jones were both off duty at the time? Edwards was last seen at 1.45 a.m. He had to be at the train station at 2.25 to pick up his special fare. What were the chances that he would exit the Howard Johnsons, happen upon Joe Christopher, and agree to drive him to a deserted parking lot? Similarly, why would Ernest Jones suddenly decide to accept Joe Christopher as a passenger and agree to drive him to a deserted boat launch in the dead of night? What happened to the large amounts of money Edwards and Jones were carrying? How did Joe find Parler's two hidden wallets, without leaving any trace that he'd ever touched anything in the cab, and know that there was money in the green cooler tucked in the back of Shorty's cab? Why did he not mention taking the money? For that matter, why would Joe Christopher, who didn't have a job and couldn't afford a car, have left money in the pockets of both victims? Evidence showed conclusively that Parler had been attacked outside his cab. Assuming he drove Joe to the dark parking lot, why would Parler get out of his cab in the first place? 
evidence showed conclusively that Shorty had first been attacked inside his cab by someone who had to have been sitting next to him in the passenger seat. Neither Joe Christopher nor anyone else could have struck a blow from the back seat. As typical in taxis, a partition separated the front and back seats of Shorty's cab and parlors as well. Crime scene photos clearly show the partition in Shorty's cab was intact and undamaged at the time police found it. Joe claimed that Shorty was outside his cab waiting for me to pay him. Why would Shorty have gotten out of his cab to collect a fare? If, as Joe said, he hadn't fought back, why did Shorty have defensive wounds on his hands? Edwards and Jones were murdered following the four .22 caliber shootings at a time when police had extra patrols out in search of a lone white man walking the streets. Ignoring the question of why Joe would have dumped the vehicle several miles away from his home, how likely is it that he could have walked back to his east side neighborhood in the middle of the night, stained with blood or not, without drawing attention, not once, but two nights in a row? These questions were never asked by Dr. Barton, nor by anyone else. Tamuwanu had never reviewed the Edwards and Jones files. He'd had no need to, since Christopher was not on trial for those murders. He convinced me that he did it, said Awanu. He was anything but a braggart. The confession came across as sincere and believable to anyone unacquainted with the particulars of each case, which was nearly everyone but the core of former task force members. The prosecutors were taken aback once again when Joe volunteered to Dr. Barton that he'd tried to strangle a hospital patient in Buffalo around the same time. He explained that he saw a looped garden hose and took it as a sign that he was meant to strangle someone. He claimed to have walked into a hospital room occupied by a black man and wrapped a bicycle chain around his neck, but a nurse had walked in and interrupted the assault and prevented him from killing the man. This was presumably the attack on Colin Cole. Colin had identified his attacker to police months earlier. He'd nevertheless been shown a photo of Joseph Christopher at the time of his 1981 lineup and did not identify Christopher as his attacker, nor did the nurse who had attended the lineup. Two hours into the examination, Dr. Barton asked Joe if he thought he'd been insane at the time he committed all of his crimes. Joe said yes. Do you think you have schizophrenia? Barton asked. Dr. Joseph says I have schizophrenia, he answered. Barton excused himself and spoke privately once again with Al Rainey. When he returned, he had some additional questions. Why would you obey voices and not your own attorney? Barton asked. It doesn't add up to me, Joseph. I thought it was real, what was happening to me, Joe answered. I thought I was in a war. I was convinced. But even in a war... People will shoot themselves in the foot to get out of the front line, Barton said. How come you were so weak, such a wimp, so namby-pamby you had to do what the voices said? I don't know. Barton questioned him further about his actions and feelings at the time. Joe's overriding memory was feeling constant fear. He didn't know why he'd believed that black men were out to get him. I don't like what I'm here for, killing black people. I don't feel I'm a racist, and right away everybody thinks you are. If you had a knife or a sawn-off rifle now and 
There was nobody around. Do you think you'd polish me off? Barton asked. No, I'd throw it away. I detest that part of my life. Going back to the time of the crimes, Barton asked, Do you feel cold and unemotional at times? I was more afraid that something was going to happen to me. Can't do it. Can't do it. Context of white supremacy. Make sure I correct the date. Today is August 11, not July. August 11, 2022. So I have been told. All right. So we will wrap up next week. Finish chapter 19. Rest of the book. Absolute Madness. Catherine Pellinero. We would have concluded this week if it had not been for fondling Father Freeman. Then we got time for Chad Fuller too. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. All righty. Let's see. Oh, the email, sorry. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. I'll get some of the emails, get my notes, and then share folks who have commentary, and then we'll wrap up next week. Uh, one of our investors uh, wrote in, black male, uh, greetings, Gus. I am gobsmacked. Uh, this is about the revelations about Father Freeman. However, I shouldn't be, given the system of racism, white supremacy. How do the revelations regarding Father Freeman coincide with the publication of Absolute Madness? Again, this book was published in 2017. Uh, all of the reports that we heard at the beginning are from 2018 forward. Could it be another case of incompetent research or cover-up by a suspected racist author? No budget, janky laptop, and continual harassment by a suspected racist? Kudos to you, Mr. Renegade. Much obliged. Now again, we could say, and it would be factually accurate, hey, maybe she just, you know, didn't hear anything, she didn't know, there were no whispers, Father Freeman, maybe that's the case. Maybe nobody had really, you know, made any big stinks about the Buffalo Catholic Church and all that at the time of this publication. Maybe that's so. You'll have to think on your own. Again, the movie Spotlight, which is about Boston, not Buffalo, came out in 2015 about the newspapers publishing reports in 2002 so everyone should have been well aware lots of folks like 
fondling Father Freeman. Chapter 19. I will say, man, oh man, it would have been criminal sloth if we had got through this book and Gus T. had not mentioned, researched, oh man, this guy is one of the rapists. Jeez. Criminal sloth. Chapter 19. Number one. As one senior task force member put it, there were basically two camps. There were those of us who said there was no way Christopher had anything to do with the cabbie murders and those who just wanted to wrap things up. So common in the global system of racism, white supremacy. Truth is not a priority. Similar to the investigation of the so-called Atlanta child murders and Wayne Williams. Just wrap things up. Number two, the cab killings were mob-related since both Edwards and Jones were bookies. Why not copycats? There is apparently no shortage of racists, white supremacists in Buffalo. That's a good point as well. Number three, Therese Christopher, Joe's behavior during the year before his arrest, the extreme withdrawal hiding plastic spoons and forks around the house, his anxieties and suspicions and complaints that the people on TV were talking about him to Dr. Joseph, what Therese described prodromal symptoms of a schizophrenic episode, the early symptoms. She had a background in psychiatric nursing. Was she completely forthcoming about his behavior prior to the year before his arrest, his childhood, things that might implicate her as a parent. Absolutely. And he's doing drugs and popping pills like you see he's having these problems or whatever. And you know, he's doing drugs. Come on, man, you should be on your job. Be diligent, trained medical professional, chop, chop. That's why I said all this. Oh, she was such a great woman. And oh, you're hanging out at the diocese with these child rapists. And then you got this extreme racist at the house. Nah, Teresa, Therese is racist. That would be it, plain and simple. Like, you got a racist child. You got an extremely racist husband who hangs out with other racists in the neighborhood. Like, matter of fact, you should have reported Joey. And you should have reported Nicholas. He was taking shots at black people in the neighborhood. Call the police on him too. You didn't do that. Number four. It's very, very hard to fake mental illness. People who are trying to fake it usually act clownish or stupid because they think it's how mentally ill would act. I always made a point of building relationships with guards at jail so I could ask them how an inmate behaved when I wasn't around or they thought they were or they thought they were unobserved. Hmm. He said I found this interesting. Wrote in for sure. Surveillance under surveillance all the time. Number five. Dr. Russell Barton was a British born psychiatrist in his 60s. His reputation was laced with controversy. Metaphor. 
or slipping a Mickey on us. Barden had been to the Bergen Belsen concentration camp at the end of World War II. Dr. Wilsing, he asserted that Bergen Belsen had been a work camp rather than an extermination center. He concluded that there had been no deliberate intent on the part of the Germans to starve or exterminate the detainees. He viewed prisoner accounts of atrocities with skepticism, but appeared to accept the word of Nazi commandants. He was a nice man, Tom Inanu recalled. What? He is a Holocaust denier and also a nice man? And this guy has more credibility than Dr. Ch Chalapa, but of course, he's white with a British accent. That's, you know, killer. British accent, it is. Oh, they got James Bond 007, like right now. Oh, yeah, it's done deal. <laughs> Certified expert for sure. Uh, let's see. Number six, uh, the chest incisions were likewise precise, made with a very sharp knife. The great vessels had been cut with a very sharp instrument. This could not have been done with a weapon as clumsy as a hatchet, no matter how sharp the hearts of both victims had been removed in a manner that indicated one assailant holding the rib cage apart while another reached in and cut all of the great vessels. The jobs had been done with deliberation and exactitude. I am certainly no mob expert, but these don't seem like mob hits. From my limited knowledge, second hand of course, it's two bullet holes to the head, cut the throat or the body just disappears. Going to the trouble of cutting hearts out seems atypical. Number seven. Oh, wait a minute, we didn't get that far. Uh, yes, we'll uh, pause right there, because we didn't get that far. We'll get the last chunk for next week. Uh, much obliged. So the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. So since we're all irregular and we just have our one audio segment today and it'll just be one next week for the folks who dialed in, the reason again, Chet Fuller, number one Chet Fuller, the great dead at 72, put some blackmail privilege on that dead at 72 but the great Chet Fuller who wrote about uh, this case and the Atlanta child But then, fondling Father Freeman. What do people think about that revelation? Beginning of the program, uh, is that important? And then, so that's one. Thoughts on that? Fondling Father Freeman, relevance to the book that we're almost done reading. And then two, that information was published 2018 this book was published in 2017. Given all of the years of talk about the Catholic Church, do we think, hey, Catherine Pellinero, she probably and reasonably may not have heard anything, may not have known anything about, hey, 
This Father Freeman guy. Yee. Do we think that that's, that's reasonable? She's focused in on old Joey and what happened here. And yes, Father Freeman is important to this book, but this information had not yet been published. And even if she did hear about it, it's what they call hearsay libel. You don't want rumors. You want things that are solid and what have you. Do we think that's reasonable? Or do we think, hey, this is a white woman, award-winning journalist, a good-looking white woman, we are told, so you should have access. You should, hey, hey, decades, thousand victims approximately, they say, like, this is a lot to not have. Certainly when they do the edit, oh man, oh man, if they do a revised edition, so that's the two. What do we think about this information? Glad we got that in before we're all done. And then do we think that's reasonable? Didn't know, didn't hear about it, all the rest. Uh, and or do you think there should have been something that she heard, knew about? Folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, Henry in Chicago, our caller at 2262. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. I agree, Gus. Agree to all the callers and listeners. Uh, I know I haven't been participating, but I have been listening to the archives, so I am caught up uh, uh, with the uh, with the reading so far. But I guess in regards to what you were talking about uh, with uh, the, uh, the 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 priest who was uh, charged with abuse, there's an interesting uh, website. And I think there's a couple of websites. One of the more popular websites is called bishopaccountability.org, uh, bishop-accountability.org. This is basically a website that uh, highlights and documents um, sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they've been around since uh, 2003. And what is interesting is... Uh, you can actually organize this by diocese. Buffalo has 208 cases uh, of accusations. And what's also interesting about this is that this is actually more than what we have in the Archdiocese of Chicago, which uh, the website says there was 180 accusations. Now, Chicago has its notorious sexual, sexual abuse priest. But I found this very interesting when you think about Buffalo and Chicago. Chicago being the third largest city in, in, in the country. Buffalo being the, I think, around 50th largest city in the country. Uh, same thing with the archdiocese. Uh, Chicago is the third largest archdiocese in the, in the, in the country. And I think Buffalo runs around 23rd or 24th. But I found that actually fascinating when Buffalo has more cases of sexual abuse than the Chicago Archdiocese. Uh, getting on to the, uh, to the reading, um, the, uh, the, the, the cases of uh, Edwards and Jones, black men being killed, having their hearts cut out, it just didn't seem like it was a priority to anybody uh, to actually find 
um, the, the, the killers if it wasn't, you know, uh, Joseph Christopher. Uh, matter of fact, it seemed like it was more to prove that he didn't do uh, do it than than to just you know say he's you know he's basically just a racist uh, a racist uh, serial killer. So uh, I thought that they were just kind of using those cases as just well you know he didn't kill these two people, but yet he killed you know he killed the other folks. You know for me it just it just uh, you know it, it was just more of trying to prove that he didn't do it. Uh, uh, and, and as this book has gone along in the last couple of uh, pages, it just seems like the author is basically trying to uh, humanize Joseph Christopher. Uh, he was this great guy, uh, and all of a sudden he just snapped. So, uh, you know, I often wondered, uh, and then, you know, all these battery of tests that they're giving Joseph Christopher, you know, testing him if he was mentally stable or competent to stand trial. Uh, I wonder if they did this for uh, Stanley Tukey Williams. Uh, did they do this for Don Muhammad, uh, the, the, uh, the DC sniper? Uh, did they evaluate these guys and see if they were good guys and they just suddenly snapped? No, they just executed them. Um, I'm interested, but, you know, obviously the author uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't imply or give the, uh, the race of the doctors who examined Joseph Christopher. I'm assuming they were all white. Um, I didn't understand how it said that he, his refusal to talk was the clearest evidence of incompetency. I don't understand that. <laughs> um, I wrote here, I w often wondered uh, if Dr. Russell Barton would have gotten flack uh, for saying that uh, black people locked up in San Quentin or Soledad or Rikers Island uh, was a case of institutional uh, neurosis. Um, probably not, but because he was saying that about white Jews, uh, he gets he gets labeled as a, um, you know, as controversial. Um, the use, uh, you know, I like how <laughs> they use the term, did he use street drugs? Uh, obviously, if he was a black man, they would have been more precise. You know, he was smoking crack or heroin or, you know, quaaludes or, you know, whatever. But I'm pretty sure precision was not a thing of uh, white drug users. Uh, I agree with the emailer uh, who mentioned about uh, how if if this the murder of Edward Jones uh, the murder of uh, Jones and Edwards was was precise in regards to cutting out their hearts how could this be a mob hit so you know that's that was the thing that I put in here as well like you know you were they were implying that it was a mob hit you know so how could I mean are mobsters hiring surgeons now to be assassins. Um, and then, uh, I think I, I noticed that, uh, Barton glossed over the actual killings that, uh, Christopher was actually charged for, you know, he kept asking these questions about Jones and Edwards, 
But what was he thinking when he killed the 14-year-old uh, 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 black boy, uh, Glenn Dunn? I mean, how come he didn't examine the men? Like, how do you get nerve to kill a 14-year-old black boy? So, but um, that's all I have on email. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. I was thinking the same thing. Like, are we going to also hear what he has to say about the actual black males that he's charged with killing and that even some of his white pals have kind of conceded? Yeah, it seems like he probably did shoot those three niggers. But I don't think he carved the hearts out of these other guys. Like, hey, he's a good dude. You know, anybody can snap and kill three niggers. I might do that today. Uh, Incidentally, we do not think all of the attorneys who participate in these many, 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 many competency hearings are white. Uh, We know the doctor, man, I do not want to say his name again, Chapelala, I think is it. My apologies if I mispronounced it, but I mean, really, have these difficult names. Uh, It's not Dr. Ben. we think he is non-white. He's the one that they keep saying he failed, you know, he failed the certification exam. He had to take it 15 times. We think that is a non-white person. Uh, and the person, our investor who just emailed in, got his contact information. I'm going to check, see if maybe he'll be willing to chat it up so we can confirm one. Is he a non-white person? And see what he thinks, you know, them just saying, hey, you're just some no-count uh, affirmative action uh, non-white psychiatrist, you know, you don't even have your credentials. You had to take the thing 15 times. They probably gave you some affirmative action pass, you know, come in here and say that this white man is, is competent. You know, he can stand trial. We think at least he is non-white. And in fact, I think the two doctors thus far that have found him uh, competent have been non-white. We think we don't know if they're black, but we think they've been non-white. We'll have to go back and double check. All right. Again, the caller who or listener who emailed wrote about this I think last week or the week before we think because we think that might even be part of the racism on the part of the author maybe in her focusing on because she said it this week too coming back to this guy's producer oh man he failed the thing he's not even certified uh, let's see uh, our caller at 2262 uh, did you have commentary as well sir have you heard yes sir Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call, Gus, and greetings everyone online. Um, I want to point out some of Joey's comments about, um, quote-unquote, seeing the devil when it came to killing these non-white black victims. And the the psychiatrist who was speaking to him, and he, uh, I guess, uh, name-called him, I call him a penny-ante wimp and a sissy for... um, uh, for what he did, and he didn't, I guess, attack this white person. But I will compare that to the situation with his um, fellow soldier when he said or claimed that he got called a faggot. That's the reason why he attacked him. I find that to be a contradiction and probably just a racist lie. Um, the um, the uh, the part about, uh, I guess, the priest that was fondling children. Uh, I didn't catch the first part of the broadcast, but um, uh, to see if uh, Palinero knew about this one or not, uh, I assume that white people know. I mean, who's all the pedophiles in the area? 
just to be on the safe side. So I think that was an act of white supremacy by her. Um, not including that in this whole uh, this whole book. And this is further critique about the author. Uh, I thought it was interesting that you know this is a she is narrating the book, um, and when she speaks in reference to Joseph uh, Joey. Um, to me, it sounds like it puts him in a more of an innocent uh, stance because this is a, a higher pitch voice speaking for a mass murderer. So I think that was probably part of her uh, uh, racist deception to um, narrate this book and make him much more of a um, a sympathetic person, sympathetic uh, individual. But the only thing I want to point out for now, but thanks for taking my call, Gus. Much obliged, sir. That's now that's interesting code. He just takes the assumption white people are informed. So she knew or should have known, could have known, had access to this uh information and just, you know, did not snitch. As was the case for his entire life. He was never charged. Never same thing for the white physician, University of Michigan, so many never charged fondling Father Freeman context of white supremacy uh, star six one if you have uh, commentary we'll finish it out next week let's see get in the other folks who wrote in their commentary and then I'll add my notes as well uh, different investor black female she wrote in hi Gus and callers my final thoughts of the book reading number one Pelinero is a racist and dishonest. She is also not a good-looking woman, in my opinion. Hmm. Take that. Number two, I was shocked, but not shocked, at the discovery about the pedophile priest fondling Father Freeman. I stopped short of researching him because the topic is so horrendous, I didn't want the detail. I wonder if Pelinero did any research on him seems like she was only interested in the misdemeanors real or false of the black victims say it twice number three what have I learned from this book how extensive the white code is and how its tools are routinely utilized irrespective of the era white people in the system of white supremacy have control over the memories and information even in the case of mass murder white people have access to any information they want Catherine Pellinero was given access to information why because she's an author no snitch question mark no snitching when it comes to crimes against black people hey, pause for fondling father Freeman sometimes no snitching even when it's crimes against white children rape of white children it can still be no snitching put that on Bill Cosby talking we were talking about quaaludes and all that lacing somebody's drink with them yes 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 now uh, white people minimize racism and crimes against black people they are not greatly I said that before, moo, 
minimize obfuscate and omit did we get a double minimize and then omit if we think Catherine Pellinero had any inkling about all of this and omitted she continues white people protect killers of black people in particular mass murders and ensure their well-being is a top priority for the racist criminal justice system including the police and prison officers they assume all white people are racist because they probably are white people do not care about children echo 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 and put that on Glenn Dunn 14 years old sexual deviance echo 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 fondling father freeman number four joy was competent to stand trial his ability to interpret the law and apply it to his case is clear evidence of his competence the suggestion that his understanding of the law is separate to his ability to stand trial is pseudoscientific bullshit um, let's see. Uh, number, I lost my place. Pseudoscience got me. Uh, number five. He was clearly guilty, if not of the taxi driver murders the rest of the crimes, and had a clear motive apart from being a racist. He argued with his dad and had a terrible relationship with him, so reincarnated himself as his father, going as far as carrying out his wish to kill black males. He was doing the exact same thing his dad did. Like they said, they said that one of the most stunning, most important parts of a book that is chock full of stunning and important parts. You mean his dad was doing the exact same thing? Jesus Christ, the food, what is it? The fruit does not fall far from the tree. Yes, Jesus Christ, like Joseph Christopher. Yes. Let's see. Number six, Laverne is a woman's name. That's what we said last week. It was just me and Bay Area mom. Number seven, Cheryl Smith and her white dog are trifling and racist. Now, when they brought that up last week, it at least to me, I don't know about you all, to me, Cheryl Smith, because she's the one who talked about uh, oh, Uncle Laverne, and oh, he was racist and kindred spirits with Nicholas, and oh, they took the basketball goals down, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, it was as though uh, Cheryl Smith was not racist. You know, she said, you know, I'm not saying that my, because I mean, this is her uncle. <laughs> no, it's the, this guy's not related to Joey at all. They're just kindred racist spirits. He's not related to Nicholas either. This is Cheryl Smith's uncle, Laverne. So if he, yeah, I'm sure he impacted Joey, but I mean, dang, it's your uncle. You spent more time with him with Joey, no question. Come on. And she had the racist talk. I forgot all about that. That's why I said this book is so full. They talked about having informants in the, where the black people live in Buffalo. Like that's super important too. white dog. She said the dog was anytime a Negro, he could, he would do the same thing. That Nicholas Christopher, black person, walks down, the dog goes crazy. Like, oh my God, the dog hates black people. Ooh. 
They got any dogs that hate white people? Me get a few of those around? Do they exist? Number eight, the words white and friend do not go together. Amen. Especially if that's going to be used when you go off and do something racist. They go and grab all of your nigger friends. Oh my God. Dylan Roof is not racist. Look here. Peyton Gendron is not racist. Look here. Joey is not. Look at all the black people that he fooled around with. Much obliged for the commentary. Get my notes in see if any other folks have commentary and then we will wrap up for this week absolutely amazing all the way through with this text and incidentally since we basically will have spent three months reading this book have you all seen any mainstream outlets really any outlets we heard Dr. T. Hassan Johnson victim of racism former cows guest he talked about this case Challenger Community News Buffalo News had a very short segment other than that I have not seen anything have you all seen commentary talking about this case I even saw the Washington Post they had an article this week I shared it they talked about a previous shooting in western New York white child went out I think it was a white young person they were like 18 something like that they went out did a shooting western New York area this was like 50 years ago or so they compared it to Peyton Gendron I said dang you skip right over Joseph and this this didn't even happen in Buffalo the incident that they were talking about it just happened that the uh, black attorney who's representing some of the victims for the shooting this year he worked on this case from 50 years ago too but I mean dang there was a shooting that happened right in Buffalo that has been totally ignored that has so much rel relevance for so many reasons notes uh, that I took uh, from chapter 19 go back to the beginning uh, and then again we'll wrap this text up next week uh, wow, taking lots of notes. Some of these chapters are kind of chunk because it seemed like we got a lot of reading in, even though we didn't do a whole lot this week and we didn't even get through the whole chapter. So she starts chapter 19. She's talking about the lack of evidence uh, that they had against Joseph Christopher. I really have not seen any evidence of like sparkling police work in any of this. Like, I think they said they had thousands of suspects. Mr. Christopher was not on this list. What kind of great work did they do? Uh, it says a, a single blue synthetic fiber had been found on one of the knives, but it did not match the clothing of the victims nor any fibers. I just pause right there. Now you want to talk about pseudoscience that right there, Wayne Williams and all their goofiness with fibers. Incidentally, I just want to get this on the record. She did not mentioned the article from the New York Times police in Buffalo say tests of soldiers jacket show human blood stains this is in the New York Times from April 
28, 1981. That's not mentioned in her book at all, even if it's to refute. Just putting that in for extras. Continuing, chapter 19. Tips received. This is about the sting operation. Back to sweeping arrests of more than a dozen persons, probably black people, involved in a numbers gambling operation on the east side. Definitely black people, east side. Code word. Uh, at the time of the bust in May 1981, the operation was reported to be clearing $10,000 per week. I suspect these are black people. In fact, I saw this article uh, talking about this uh, bust. I think I have it. Uh, let's see. Even before the phone. Oh, I got it. Let's see. Next. Edwards had cash in his pockets. His credit cards had been left. The killers had apparently only taken the wallets containing the larger sums of money, perhaps because they felt it belonged to them. She didn't even have a question mark there. Like. I don't even know. Like, what is that? I don't even know what that means, really. Like, if you're going to take money, why not take it all? Like, I have no idea if I feel like just this part belongs to me and not this over here or whatever, especially if you're going to go through all this with the killing. Like, I have no idea. Next, um, she says it could be deduced that there were unwritten but loud and clear messages here, both in the extreme and deliberate savagery inflicted on the victim and in what and how certain things had been left as if the killers were saying killers like that's not even questioned that there were multiple people we want you to know who this is we want you to know this isn't a robbery she said that they took the larger amount of money hmm I don't if they took the larger money then this is a robbery at least a somewhat robbery uh we want you to know what we're capable of a message perhaps or a potent warning intended not for police but perhaps for other numbers runners who might think of running afoul of the organization is there a history of this sort of like savage mutilation of a corpse in the numbers running it like we read Minister Malcolm X's autobiography. Now, you want to talk about sexual perversion. Lots of that there, too. But I mean, hey, I ran numbers. I don't remember him saying anything. Violence. Yes. She's a yes. Yes, yes, yes. All that. Blah, blah, blah. Shoot somebody. All that. Got it. Did we, did we miss a chapter where they talked about we carve up people and take out their heart as a warning, you know? you run afoul of West Indian Archie and we will gut you right now where was that chapter you gotta come up with something you gotta come I mean way better than that Pelinero or anybody else let's see she says that uh, both Parlor Edwards Shorty Ernest Shorty Jones knew Colin Cole which, you know, I guess, okay, maybe they knew each other. Maybe they didn't. Again, I say based on her, just based on what I read in this book, I said it the first time I heard about the case of Colin Cole. That was the one that was almost strangled where a nurse said they saw a white guy in there doing it. Uh, and she said Colin might have strangled himself or some nonsense. Oh, the police officer said that. Yeah. Anyway, flipping uh, with I said 
did did Joey know Colin Cole when Ernie Smith said that they went out for street workers? Oh man, done deal. You all are doing that. That shows me right there that if you all are out looking for prostitutes and what have you, you could know Colin Cole. You're out looking for street workers and what have you. And Colin Cole dressed like a woman. Transvestite, they said. So, yeah, I think he could have known Colin Cole. Continuing. Beyond all that, many seasoned investigators didn't buy Joseph Christopher as a viable suspect for the cab murders. He wasn't on their suspect list at all. So for any of these crimes prior to the confessions in Fort Benning. So again, is this exemplary police work? Next. um, They call him a wimp. (laughs) Like... how is this guy in my opinion all of this is minimizing it's the same thing like white people are dumb and ignorant how is this guy a wimp he was in the army there doesn't seem to be a lot of question uh we think he did kill glenn dunn harold glean harold glenn sorry green sorry uh joseph mccoy Emmanuel Thomas, it seems we also think he did these midtown slashings as well so that's a lot of kills and attempted kills and even I think he did Colin Cole, nurse said she saw a white person and all the rest I think he knew I think that's on him too like what? how would this guy even at this point have been convicted they overturned the convictions or what have you but I mean what do you mean wimp? what are you talking about? again that name calling is generally not used in this manner we're name calling to minimize this guy same thing Madonna Madonna Gorney said oh man this guy's not going to be at all any help at all he's a dope the same thing she said this guy's going to kill a black child in about seconds from now I don't think if it was a black male me one of you all and they were accused of killing someone especially if it was white but anybody even a black person I don't think they'd be referring to us as a wimp Let's go back in here if they were talking about Wayne Williams as a wimp in the Atlanta case. Let's see. Not all state police were on board with the theory that Christopher had killed the cab drivers. Matt Ortiz, son of state police investigator and task force member Amador Ortiz recalled my dad always insisted that both of the cab killings were mob related since both Edwards and Jones were bookies I don't I mean I guess this is supposed to have validity since this is the son of a state police investigator but I mean he's not a state police officer so I mean this is I don't I'm looking at Pelinero like again so this guy is a credible source but none the Buffalo Challenger is not This guy is a credible source, but the Buffalo Criterion is not. This guy is a credible source, but Chet Fuller is not. Maybe his dad did go around saying this all the time, but that's the best source that you have. The son of a police officer who maybe had this opinion, maybe didn't, and we don't even have any of the information that this was based on. I mean, woo. 
yeah, I got hearsay, but I mean, like, wow, this is like generation. I don't even know what they call that. Like what I used to hear grandpappy and chet fuller um racial overtones uh she has the next one uh for this case has racial overtones whatever that means Mm -mm. we had this before uh christopher refusing to talk being evidence of his incompetency i remember when we read geronimo g jaga Pratt's autobiography Last Man Standing uh, Johnny Cochran said uh, your client is supposed to curse you out being a defense attorney so them being uncooperative they get mad with you want to fire you all of that that is typical supposed to happen so no I do not view that is incompetency uh, the client not cooperating with the defense attorneys Not, not at all uh, let's see. Geronimo Pratt, his uh, attorney, was going to step down in that case as well. Talked about that, read that last year. Uh, let's see. The following week, Joe had a conversation with his new attorneys. He communicated with them fairly well. He told David J. that he did not want an insanity defense. J. told him that was fine. Make the prosecution prove their case. Joe seemed pleased with that. I didn't think he was insane from the beginning. And in fact, from the beginning, he's kind of been saying the same thing. They don't have anything on me. Prove their case. That's what Pelinero has been saying, right? They don't have any evidence in the cab killings. They really don't have a lot of good evidence in these other cases too, right? That's the same thing he's been saying. I don't think that's insanity. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. I never even heard of the not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. I never even heard. Like, is that something that's exclusive to New York State or do they have that like across the land? I'd never like seriously. I'd never heard of that. I've heard of. Yes. Not guilty. uh, Insane. Not competent. All of that. I've heard of that before. But reason of mental disease disease or defect and this is different from an insanity plea or you're not competent to stand trial that's totally different like wow that wow being classified as white is absolutely amazing it's like there's a totally different law book totally different rules apply to you that are favorable to you in every situation they continue uh I said that that was that was also huge I I cannot emphasize that enough it is so sickening this book is a glaring illustration of how in the system of white supremacy it is never white women are not racist the white women right in this book all the way through to the author Pelinero Madonna Gorney I forgot to tell them that Joey was out there because I, I felt comfortable seeing that white face, even a dopey one in this sea of Negras. She was the one she said people got mad at her. She lost friends because she testified. Joey's girlfriend, she didn't even want to cooperate. She didn't want to like, man, we got bodies piled up in the street. 
twisting my words and making me ask me the same question 50 different ways and making me say things and tell them stuff I didn't even want to share. That's what she said. The white, we just heard. Cheryl Smith, that's the one with the racist dog and Uncle Laverne. The worst of the worst. Therese Christopher. I don't want to hear nothing about how much time she spent at the church with these raping white folks. I don't care. I don't want to hear nothing about how good she was. Hey, if you're a nurse, you should know my son is wacky. I got to do something. And he's taking wacky tobacco and God knows what else. Popping pills. I got to do something about my son. And I married an extreme racist. He's taking shots at black pedestrians. He could kill somebody. I got to do something about him too. She didn't do that. That's not what a good Catholic does. That's what I expect from a racist. So I don't want to hear nothing about, oh, it's so painful. It was more sympathy in this book for Therese Christopher than any of the black people even the victims that got killed their families none of them it was over and that was in the newspaper too it's not like that was just Pelinero. that was over and over in the papers like oh they talked about it attorney Cosgrove came and was like oh my goodness this has been so tragic oh and I just feel for Therese Christopher oh it's so terrible oh my goodness my heart just goes out to her that poor woman what are you talking about you talking about some of the other folks, Kenny Paulson and what have you, if he had just snitched to begin with, you, if she had snitched on her son to begin with, maybe we could have saved some lives. Maybe even if you had snitched on your husband, excuse me, snitched on your husband, extreme racist, and he's going out vandalizing the parks, taking down the basketball goals. Snitch on that too. Maybe white people want to shoot some hoops there too. No? You can't have a system of white supremacy without Therese Christopher. It's not even possible. Through and through. Raping those children at the church. Through and through. rest of my notes John Hopkins uh, Dr. Joseph had a wealth of experience in identifying and treating schizophrenia worked at John Hopkins man you want to talk about wealth of experience and mistreating niggers talked about John Hopkins extensively medical apartheid and the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks let's see Oh man, come on Pelinero. She said, just as Dr. Joseph was certain of this, that Christopher was mentally ill, had schizophrenia, he was equally certain there would be a rejection of the explanation of mental illness, both in court and in general public, who would continue to insist on a motive they could better understand. Pause right there. I do understand mental illness. We had someone I used to talk to pretty frequently. She said black people victims of racism do not qualify for mental health I understand and have tremendous regard for mental health as a serious problem I also understand sometimes you just got racists many times we get the minimizing of white people 
practicing racism. Do I think Joey had some mental problems? Absolutely. Do I think he understood right and wrong enough in this to be comp- uh, convicted? Stand trial? Absolutely. And again, hey, you got lots of cases of black people who were in substantially worse conditions and they outright executed. He got a whole lot of competency competency hearings and trials and resources that are frequently denied to black people. Even I think Gail Trait. Make sure we get that in before we wrap this here book up. Uh, oh, and the metaphors, my God, she was killing it with the metaphors the whole time through here. She says, uh, decades after the trial, Brian Joseph explained, if you do defense work as a psychiatrist for the insanity plea, the only way you can survive is if you have the attitude of Rhett Butler toward the Battle of Atlanta. Now, I'm including the author in this, even though all of this is in quotes. This is not even broken. Pelinero and apparently the editors, they assume gone with the wind. You want to talk about deception and racism. They assume that more than a century after that book was written, Gone with the Wind is so widespread, we will pick this metaphor up without any detail necessary. Wow. Everybody got that right. Our our 21st century audience, everybody read moldy old Gone with the Wind. I don't know, maybe that's required reading for students in the Georgia area, but I mean, really? The arrogance of such an assumption and the white supremacy of such an assumption, even the metaphor that book was regarded as history for the longest happy negras Bill Russell talked about that exactly the happy negras just here to serve old Scarlet in fact we just talked about that in our last book two times today dear Senator Essie May talked about Gone with the Wind and the impact that film had on her Again, uh, she mentioned that she said it so explicitly. Uh, I think it's Dr. Chapella making me say uh, these wacky names. Dr. Chapella, I think it is. When she said this time around, the opinion of a doctor from a state hospital who kept flunking his board exams might not be sufficient. Continuing to bring that up, we think he was non-white. I think he was. Uh, Let's see. Dr. Barden, British-born expert. Uh, I think it's common for DAs to have uh, all kinds of folks on return retainer who will be beneficial to them because they do so much prosecuting and typically as has been stated in this book so explicitly so many times it's mostly black people that's why they got to have all the extra security for Joey right they got lots of niggers locked up because they got these folks on retainer they do great work we convict these niggers out here in West New York. Uh, she said he he was laced with controversy. I said the metaphor Bill Cosby-ish uh, with the uh, quaaludes. Uh, let's see. Dr. Barton had far out ideas. I don't even know what that means. Uh, let's see. 
all of this about the Holocaust denial, I think there are a number of folks like this is almost, I'd say, like a niche, uh, white people primarily. Uh, and some of this is just, I think some of these folks might be racist, right? That's kind of a controversial one. Some white people argue and bicker about are some of the individuals who are classified as Jewish who could be accepted as white. Are they white? And they'll squabble and argue about that. That can be a big source of, of controversy uh, and conflict for some folks classified as white. So this could be, you know, what this is, his brand of white supremacy racism. He doesn't like the so-called Jews, so-called. Uh, let's see. Uh... Yeah, all of this again, saying if he could find talking about Barton, if he could find prisoners of a Nazi concentration camp culpable for their own starvation and inhuman living conditions, surely he could find Joseph Christopher Sane. Really, the metaphors, really. I think people who are competent and who didn't flunk their exams can also find Christopher Sane. In fact, Matt Greider said, oh, yeah, this guy is sane. Journalist, not a psychiatrist, but we talked to him before as well. Uh, let's see. Even this one, they say uh, for Tom Ianu, I think I got ah, Ianu, his first meeting with Joseph Christopher was jarring, but not in the way he had anticipated. To me, the guy just wasn't a criminal. What? Ianu recalled from the first impression, I felt sorry for him. What? Terribly sorry for him. What? He was not a monster at all. Who are the monsters? Hmm. Hmm. Terribly sorry for him. He was not a monster at all. The opposite. A quiet man. I'm stunned with how many times he gets uh, described throughout this whole ordeal as a quiet, nice fella. I've never killed anybody. I, like Joey, I have been called a faggot. I did not go grab a paring knife and pierce someone in the chest. I did not drop out of high school. Like none of the things that Joey is accused of groping the female. Remember that when he did that, when he was in custody of Fort Benning, none of that, none of that. People do not say, wow, that, that Gus T is, is a nice guy. He's a nice fella. He's not a monster. He's, he's gentle, quiet, nice. My my heart goes out to that gust. He's been brought. People don't say that about me at all. That nigra is a monster. There are non-white. I do not hear President Obama talked about like this. And like I said, it's been the whole way through. It's in the newspapers and what have you. He was such a nice. He went to church. Oh, he just lived in the choir. Oh, he shoveled all my snow. Remember that time he made us a snowman? Oh, he is the greatest thing ever. We love Joey. And and in the parade, the black people don't we? Don't wasn't he great? Oh, we love Joey. He's the greatest white guy ever. I don't think white people didn't talk about Will Smith like that before the slap or Chris Rock let's see they said nobody had a bad word to say about him he hit age 25 and went off now we'll pause right here now you drop out of school and are popping pills come on and in fact rewind 
they talked about at the gun club. That's in Matt Greider's book. At the gun club, he got an attitude. He was mad. And they said he would slam his gun down. He would get upset because he would miss the target. I don't want to hear no nonsense about, oh, no, everything. He was great until that. Wait a minute. He dropped out of high school, didn't he? Oh, okay. 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 Right. And he was slamming the gun down. Oh, okay. Okay. And he got mad because he lost the presidency at the gun club to a nigra. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, so he didn't hit 25 and just start having all these problems. <sighs> Nobody had a bad word to say about him. Get out of here. Uh, I bet if he was a nigra, they'd had all kinds of bad things to say about him. Uh, went around shooting people, went around shooting black people. I love the point that as well, our, the person who wrote in uh, made Hey, oh, the, who's the caller? Sorry, our caller, second caller. Where he said, hey, when he's being questioned by the English white man, maybe the English accent got him. An Englishman comes in and calls you a wimp. It doesn't sound the same. Like, wow, I can't really, I can't really stab an Englishman, a white Englishman. Like, I can't really kill James Bond here. Like, that's, that's not gonna, that's not acceptable. But yeah, he's, he calls him a wimp and a, and a namsy pamsy. Like, what is that? <laughs> On GP, that should just be, what, what did you call me? Let that slide. Hmm. He didn't even give him one. To, call me a namsy pamsy again. I, dare, I double dare you. Medication? I don't know. Uh... I don't believe that when he says he, he didn't think it was wrong to kill the cab drivers then, but he thinks that now I don't believe that at all. If you didn't know it was wrong from so many components, number one, he ran from the scene. If you didn't know it was wrong, why are you running? You don't want to get caught. Mm. Why aren't you using the gun for the midtown slashings? Oh, if you're going to do this on a subway because it's loud. Oh, my try. You might not be able to get away. Why would you need to get away? Is there a problem with this? That's what I mean. This none of this makes sense. It's like, oh yeah, he just didn't know. He was just crazy. He was just a loon. No, he, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. He's just doing what he saw really what he saw white people doing in general Charles Bronson saw Death Wish again this week <laughs> looking at the newspapers fall this popped up again told you came out anyway uh, anything else I don't know with this whole thing when he's talking about the cab drivers I don't know if he's lying is he because he had done that before like he's kind of messing around with these folks who was talking to him I don't know if he's doing all of that to me that doesn't to, that is not evidence of his guilt innocence none of the above I just I take it I evaluate okay <laughs> we come, and in fact pause on everything this book is kind of long way back when Ernest Shorty Jones that was the black male white girlfriend where Zoe she said before he was murdered Mr. Jones stops by checks in on her 
some guy is grilling them at the shop. The person looks over and says, hey, you look like that 22 caliber killer guy. Says, yep, that's me. Looking like he's mad. Looking at this so-called interracial couple. And then goes out and says something to Mr. Jones. Who was that? Now, that's another one. White code. Why didn't everybody? I mean, as soon as this person. Hey, you look like the. Uh, what's that 22 killer guy? You look like him. The sketch they got up. Oh, yeah. That's me. Immediately on the phone. Whoa. Police. Get down here. Right. That didn't happen. What happened to all of that? Who was that? Does that remind you of anybody that we've heard? I don't like Negras being with a white girl. Now, I have heard that from a lot of white people, but oh, wasn't that Joey and Joey's dad even? They said he looked like the sketch. Did they go and see Joey? Did they think this is the same guy? Even if they didn't, I still got to, man, come on, come on. Uh, And again, that's another one. If they had snitched in the first place, maybe Mr. Jones would still be with us. Let's see. Given the shoddiness of the police where she says, hey, you know, if he snatched this heart out, as he said, put a stake through it, threw it, an animal came along, which picked it up, which could have happened. Uh, saying she says, so, OK, if that happened, wouldn't there be traces of blood? Yeah, maybe. Maybe not, depending on where it landed. And now how great a police work do I think would have been done? Chet Fuller said the police at the precincts. They got pictures of the the SketchUp folks saying, hey, man of the year, my hero. If that's the case, do I think they would have done a again? Hey, they said they had 2000 suspects. Joey wasn't one of them. I don't think they did exemplary uh, work in this case. That's just my view. So maybe they would have found it if they had been a blunt state. Maybe they wouldn't have. We talked to Matt Gride. He said, hey, Joey doesn't run his mouth in Fort Benning. Maybe they don't catch him at all. Anything else? She brought Zoe back up. We didn't get a bring back up of, dang, this was the one. They said, yeah, we talked to this guy before. You look like the sketch. That should have been brought back up, in my opinion, too. Uh, We got the homo thing again. Why'd you stab Leonard Coles? I was hearing voices. I thought he was saying I was a homo. Same thing. I thought I was on a mission. What in the world? What is the mission where black person calls you a homo? Kill him immediately on the spot. What? And why didn't he do that before? All the other people, he didn't do that. Just kill somebody on the spot so that they could have been grabbed and seen. All the others, he was super incognito on the sly stealth if he was really crazy 
Let's see. Anything else? Namby Pamby. He says, oh, I thought that this will be my last one. Then we wrap up. He says, uh, Joe's overriding memory was feeling constant fear. Hmm. White genetic annihilation. Uh, He didn't know why he believed that black men were out to get him. I don't believe I don't like what I'm here for killing black people. I don't feel I'm a racist. He didn't just say I'm not a racist. I don't feel he didn't even say I don't think I'm a racist. He said I don't feel I'm a racist. And white array everybody thinks you are. Now again I haven't found any newspaper articles where they say this guy's a racist even in the black press. That's not what they're saying. They say this guy was attacking black people which is true. They're not calling him a racist. Why why do so many whites feel the compulsion and you see that through and through. I am not a racist. What's my brother? Donald Sterling. My sick white brother. They got him on tape and all he said about Magic Johnson everybody said hey 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 hey. I am not a racist. I just don't want magic at my game. You get that AIDS spreading Negro out of here. Don't bring any other nigga. And he said the same thing. Don't bring these black guys. It wasn't black people. It was black males. Specifically, maybe he had the same fear that Joey had. These black males are out to get me. I got to do something about it. I think Dylan Roof said the same thing. Peyton Gendron. I'm on a mission. These black males, I got to do something about them. Anywho, uh, we can pause there and we will wrap up for next week. Again, we would have finished this week. Fondling Father Freeman, I thought, was pretty important super important um, oh and he thought he would be sodomized what is going on here what is going on? and even add that ding 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 make sure we get that in before we wrap he thought he would be sodomized now that's why we took all that extra time we already said I think it was one of the callers who wrote it she said dang why is a grown white man wetting the bed was he molested Whew. he was in the Cub Scouts The Boy Scouts are bankrupt because of child molestation. The Buffalo Diocese. A pit of child rape. Way beyond Father Friedman. We even had thoughts about Nicholas. He was certainly verbally abusive and all the rest, maybe even physically abusive as well. That's what they said in the book. So, hey, would it be that much of a stretch to say he might have been sexually abusive as well? Who knows? At any rate, why would he think he was going to be sodomized if he didn't kill this black guy? What? What? 
you're not in prison. I've never heard anybody talk about I have fears that I'm going to be anally raped unless I do thus and so forth. Thus and so. And anally raped by black males? What? What? That's why we spent the all of this, every page of the book. I don't think he had fears that he was going to be anally raped by a black male. What I said already today, I think he wanted to have some anal penetration with black males, probably both ways. That's why that's all the fooling around with Ernie. I said that before. And then especially if he's been violated as a child in some sort of way and has some questions about his masculinity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Dr. Welsing's theory, that's there anyway for white men. Fear of white genetic annihilation and viewing black males as a threat that might be intensified if you are a white male and you have been sexually violated as a child or even as an adult. That fear may be intensified. I'm just theorizing. Hard to say, but I mean, wow, it is quite a bit to ponder over. Anywho, did our broadcast. I thought we were going to be short today and we were not. Did uh, full time. Uh, didn't see any other hands. So I will assume folks uh, are satisfied. We will wrap up next week. Last segment and then we'll have time for folks to share. Uh, if They have final thoughts on uh, Father Freeman whether or not Pellinero could have reasonably known about this information or speculated, heard about any of this with the Buffalo Diocese, things of that nature, final takeaways from this text, and even application to the Gendron case moving forward. We'll do our grand finale next Thursday. We'll be here tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Much obliged for folks tuning in live or archive. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday. With that, sobriety would be best. Man, never know when you will have to make life-saving decisions. Gendron, Joey, on the loose. If you're out and about, you see someone being hostile and rowdy, exit. You don't know if they're armed. You don't know if they have an entourage unless you are prepared to die and kill on the spot exit if you're in a vehicle you're sober buckled up not on your cell doing the small things to keep ourselves as safe as we can and trying our best to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, That's brother. Your problem. You're a victim. Yeah.
Shut my victim up. of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. 